This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Taylor Green had some interesting remarks this week, particularly in light of uh, the fact that uh, over the last week or two, we're spending a lot of time getting through uh, a study of the Civil War, a look at uh, what Abraham Lincoln was doing during the Civil War, and a bunch of other things. Uh, this is what Marjorie Taylor Green said. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Green tweeted the following. We need a national divorce. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. Now, essentially, it sounds like she's calling for two separate countries on this continent. And, you know, it's funny. I know a lot of conservatives and a lot of liberals That would agree with her. I remember after George uh, W. Bush got reelected, Bill Maher and others who were, you know, on the left, they basically said, we changed our mind about the whole Civil War thing. You can go. Because almost all the Confederate states ended up supporting George W. Bush, and he wouldn't have been elected but for that. And after Barack Obama won, and after... Uh, Joe Biden won. It was a similar situation among conservatives. A lot of conservatives said, look, why should we have uh, the values of people in New York and California because they have some large population centers? Why should they get to control what we do in Ohio and Nebraska and Montana and Wyoming? And look, there is a certain logic to it. What I want to ask you is, do you think... Marjorie Taylor Greene is right. Whether you're liberal or conservative or somewhere in the middle, do you think we need a national divorce? Why or why not? I'm going to give you my answer, but I want to hear yours. 800-848-9222. Is it time for a national divorce? Should the United States of America become two countries, a red America a state with all the, you know, a country with all the red states and a country with all the blue states and the purple states can decide which country they want to be a part of. Why or why not? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited 
a question. Obviously, her comments are being criticized by many. Uh, Liz Cheney uh, said, let's review some of the governing principles of America. Our country is governed by the Constitution. You swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution. Secession is unconstitutional. No member of Congress should advocate secession, Marjorie. Now, she is right and she is wrong. Uh, the Supreme Court, in a, in a case, Texas versus White, 1868, did hold that the states do not have the right to unilaterally secede from the United States. So the Confederate states during the Civil War always remained part of the Union. That was the finding from the Supreme Court. A couple of things, though. Just because the Supreme Court says something doesn't mean they're right, number one. Number two, there are people that disagreed with that Supreme Court interpretation. And uh, there are a lot, and I'm not talking about a war here. I'm not talking about, um, you know, those of us that live in New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania uh, picking up our muskets to start firing at the people that live in Texas and Alabama and Georgia. No, uh, I, I am talking about if a state wants to nonviolently secede, should they be able to? So I guess that's the other part of my question is whether you think we need a national divorce or not, should states be able to? Now, somebody that made a very passionate case for why certain parts of a country should be able to leave and secede if they want when he was in Congress was Abraham Lincoln. Yes, that's right. Abraham Lincoln as a congressman was a lot different from Abraham Lincoln as a president. As president, he's all about preserving the union, preserving the union. Um, when he was in the House as a member of the Whig Party, a proud protege of Henry Clay, Abraham Lincoln took to the floor of the House and railed against anyone that would dare question Texas and their right to secede from Mexico. Remember, Texas was a part of Mexico. Then they became their own country, and then they became ultimately part of the United States after 10 years. But um, I'm not talking about a legal issue here. I'm talking about a political and an economic one. I happen to, this is where I come down on it, and I'll tell you what. I happen to think that if a state wants to leave the union, they should be able to, 100%, without a war, without anything. If a state votes to leave and votes to secede and they think they can do better on their own, good luck to you. You don't want to be here. We don't want you. And by the way, if you look at some of the debates over ratification of the Constitution, the states, many of them, went, had serious reservations about ratifying the new constitution when it was proposed. But very, I, I don't think any of these states were told that once they joined, they, they, they were in for life. It was like the mafia. They could never leave. Or the Hotel California, a better example. They were not told that they could never leave. It was a voluntary association that they chose to be a part of. And I think a lot of people that ultimately voted to ratify that Constitution in the 1780s, they were of the opinion that if they didn't like what the central government was doing, they could leave. But the Supreme Court in 1868 said otherwise. So I don't want to get into the legality of whether or not states can leave or not. I want to talk about morally. If you had your druthers, you could wave a magic wand. Would you want two separate countries, one for conservatives, one for liberals? You could live wherever you wanted. Uh, you want gun control and health care for everybody. Maybe you live in the um, maybe you live in the liberal 
United States of America. You want uh, low taxes, uh, gun rights, and, you know, no minimum wage. Maybe you live in the conservative states of America. Why or why not? 800-848-9222. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene was on uh, Sean Hannity's program on the Fox News Channel yesterday explaining her comments about a national divorce. This is what she said. In, in my life, in my world, I, all of my friends are regular Americans. Everyone I talk to is sick and tired and fed up of being bullied by the left, abused by the left, and disrespected by the left. And our ideas, our policies, our ways of life have become so far apart that it's just coming to that point. And the last thing I ever want to see in America is a civil war. Um, No one wants that. At least everyone I know would never want that. But it's going that direction, and we have to do something about it. We're also a nation, a crumbling nation. We're a nation in distress. Our government is in complete failure, over $34 trillion. We are on the verge of default, and we have to do something about that. But that was the right and the left that did that to the American people on their own. But the Democrats never stop pushing their policies, their ideas, and their culture on Republicans and the right. And we are so sick and tired of it. Curtis Lee, or Custis Lee, excuse me, a descendant of Robert E. Lee, the famous Civil War general, was on a TMZ slamming Marjorie Taylor Greene's comments about a national divorce. Well, as as a collateral descendant of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, it's clear to me that Robert E. Lee uh, would have probably sided with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I know that's something she may celebrate. But to me, that's something that we cannot condone. Uh, We must condemn in the strongest terms possible as a nation, as people of goodwill everywhere. For Marjorie Taylor Greene to side with my ancestors, uh, the people who fought against this nation, is nothing short of treason. Well, first of all, no, it's not. It's expressing a political point. She's not at all encouraging people to, uh, you know, start a new civil war. She specifically said that she's not. Second, uh, I think it's a little unfair to compare the political philosophies and the ideologies of 1861 and 2023. But I'll let the rest of his comments stand as they were. So I'm not talking legally. I'm talking politically, and if you had your druthers, would you want two separate countries? My answer is no. One is you have all the practical implications. The $30 trillion worth of debt that we have, that was accumulated by the whole United States of America. So what are we going to do? We're going to split the bill uh, for the debt that we have in half. You take half, I take half. Or do we divide it by uh, by, by, by economic production per capita. I think that gets to be impractical. Then let's say all the people that have moved from one state to another, anybody know someone from New York or New Jersey that's moved to Florida or Texas or Arizona? I certainly do. Are we really going to say that when you go home from Florida to New York or New Jersey, you're going to have to have your passport stamped and have a different type of currency? I mean, it just gets to be ridiculous. And three, I I really think what Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing, it's such a, by even proposing this, and I'm all for having the discussion, which is why I started the show with this. By even proposing this, I think that she's, um, it's almost like throwing in the towel. 
I think, I mean, I think she has an ulterior motive in that she wants to get attention. She wants to get retweets. She wants to get on cable news. She wants to get talked about on talk radio. She wants to uh, raise her profile to raise money and whatever else she wants to do. Fine. But um, I think by by doing this, by making this proposal, even if it's only on Twitter, it really it's like you're throwing in the towel and saying, you know what? We can't get along. Liberals and conservatives can't function in the same country. Uh, People in red states can't get along with people in blue states. And the polarization and the toxicity is so bad, we have to call it quits and have two separate countries and a national divorce. I think the better solution is, is you get Marjorie Taylor Greene in a room with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You get Matt Gaetz in a room with Ilhan Omar. You get Lauren Boebert in a room with Rashida Tlaib. And you get the people that are causing a lot of the polarization and toxicity in the country, to some extent. I don't want to get into the exact causes of polarization. You get them to find a way that people can get along with one another. The quote that I played from Rush Limbaugh from 1994 yesterday when he was on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, I really think we could play that every day. And all he said was, there's no reason that people who disagree politically can't get along and can't be friends. And that is so true. That is so true. And I get what she means about uh, liberals and Democrats imposing their values on conservatives. A lot of liberals would say the same thing about conservatives. You know, for instance, in the state of uh, Florida, I don't want to have a whole abortion discussion, but in the state of Florida, I read an article yesterday that uh, because this this woman can't have an abortion, she's actually going to have to give birth to a, a baby and watch the baby die. I mean, it's really a sad situation. And I think a lot of, I think that couple and I don't know their politics, but that couple would feel and other abortion rights activists would feel that it's the right that's or that that's imposing their values on them. So I think there are people on both sides that feel this way. So whether you're on the right or on the left, do you think we'd be better off as a continent with two separate countries? Yes, no, and why? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Mark in Maryland. Hello there, Mark. Mark. I'm I'm Mark in Raleigh, North Carolina. Ah, North so, Carolina. Sorry, yeah, not according to yeah, Kenneth. That's okay. why I was quiet. Ah, yes. sorry. Okay, we um, got you. Well, you've reached a southerner, uh, but uh, my, both of my great great grandfathers fought for the Confederate States. One owned slaves. One was opposed to slavery. He still fought for the independence of his country. And I'll tell you, uh, I think that this secession or division has already been settled. It was settled in blood, and and the decisions. You know, the people, the great leaders that have had all their monuments, memorials torn down were great men, and they ended the war, and people like Robert E. Lee helped put it back together again and make great men. A lot of those men, a lot of those Southern leaders fought in the Spanish-American War as generals like Joe Wheeler. So the, the decision was already decided. Unfortunately, there was nothing against secession before the Civil War, and the Civil War could have been averted. North Carolina, my state, was kicked out of the Union by Lincoln. We were sent a demand to supply 85,000 troops to invade other southern states. I'll tell you what, 
I wouldn't honor that today. If someone told me to invade South Carolina and attack my family, I'd tell them to go to hell. I wouldn't do it. Well, understanding what went on in the 1860s, all right, and there was a lot of discussion about secession from 1787 all the way until 1868. Uh, it right. was talked about as a viable option by a lot of states, yes. and not just southern states, by the way. But, That's true. Um, but putting aside what happened, uh, you know, 160 years ago, let's talk about now, right? If you could, right, putting aside the legality or the practical implications, would you want two separate countries, one of the red states and one in the blue states? I would not, personally. I think we're stronger as a country. I think, uh, you know, we're always going to have division. We've always had division since since the foundation of the republic. And, yes, there are a lot of moral issues that uh, I oppose liberals on, and I'm sure they they have equal disdain for me and my opinions. But uh, I think we're stronger as a country. I don't believe that we could survive in this big neighborhood that that we call a world with all of the enemies we have today, like China and Russia. Uh, We need to be united. I think, uh, as you know, every time we have a crisis or an attack, the the nation tends to put these things aside and come together. That's right. That's right. Mark, I agree with you completely. Thank you. 800-848-9222. And the other thing is the red states and the blue states bring different things to the table. I mean, can you imagine uh, trying to run a government, even a very limited one? without the tax revenue that Wall Street brings in. So can you imagine the United States of America, even a red states of America without Wall Street? At the same time, can you imagine a country trying to feed itself or even make some sort of inroads to feeding itself without being able to trade without the possibility of a tariff with the states that are producing so much of the produce that we have? I think the sooner we realize and the sooner people like Marjorie Taylor Greene realize that there are different things that different states bring to the table and there's different things that um, that right wingers and left wingers bring to the table, the better we all off are. For instance, and again, I know I said I would uh, let you guys talk and this will be the last comment that I make and then I'll leave the rest of this discussion to you. For instance, do you think without the left wing we would ever have Social Security and Medicare in this country. And yet, think of all the conservative seniors that are able to avoid poverty because of Social Security and Medicare. Without the uh, right wing, do you think we would have the kind of strong police departments that we have in cities like New York and and Los Angeles? Imagine having to try to deal with the crime in uh, big cities like Chicago without some of the policies supportive of the police that conservatives have fought for. I think um, the sooner we get over this, the better we all are. And uh, I think, I I don't know if this is a serious proposal or if it's just done as a thought experiment or shock value, but look, when a member of Congress says we need a national divorce, that's big news. So... I, I owe, I think, you the opportunity to talk about it. 800-848-9222. Vito is on Staten Island. Hello, Vito. Yeah, hello. Uh, it's uh, I agree with the mark from South Carolina, you know, because divided we fall and united we stand. And we wouldn't, I wouldn't want another state to be autonomous in the middle of the United States because they could uh, – uh, 
uh, ally up with China or Russia in the uh, future. And then we'll have enemies in the middle of the country. Yeah, well, that's a, a very good point, Vito. Now, what do you say to, uh, I agree with you, but what do you say to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene that says, look, these Democrats are and these liberals are imposing their will on our states and our citizens, even though we never voted for this agenda. Why should we be subjected to all these onerous restrictions, all these limitations on our freedom, all these high taxes when we never voted for it? Well, uh, you know, that sounds pretty plausible. Why not? But I would more be concerned about our security and safety. And they're going to have to learn what the Constitution says. If that's a... If that's a ruling, then that's what we have to go with. Well, the con- well, thank you, Vito. Just to be clear, the Constitution is silent on the issue of secession. It doesn't mention it. It doesn't say states are allowed. It doesn't say states are not allowed. In this 1868 case, the Supreme Court said, look, governments are not corporations. There's no time limit on how long you join for. Once you're in, you're in. Uh, but uh, there are there were scholars at the time even non-secessionist scholars that disagreed with that interpretation. So I'm not even talking about the legality. I'm talking about politically, economically, culturally. Would you want to? Would you want two separate countries? 800-848-9222. John's on Long Island. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. Uh, I heard this topic a few years ago was being discussed on Red Eye Radio, and uh, they made a a very good point, too, as well, that if this is is this if this a session in, in, against states? Each state has to uh, issue their own currency. This can be a financial disaster. You know, there's all kinds of commerce laws that have to change. The currencies have to be changed because each state has to support their own currency. So it's really undoable. Even the discussion of it is just, I don't think it can even be done. Even from a spirit of, from a spirit of discussion about it, it can't be done. Yeah, well, a lot of people felt the same way in uh, in the 1860s, and yet uh, they were able to at least give it the old college try of forming their own country. 800-848-9222. Paul is on Staten Island. Hello, Paul. Hey, Frank. How's everything? Great. That's good. Listen, I think it's a bad idea. I, I, sooner or later, I, I would see it breaking out to a civil war. You got, you got two sides screaming at each other. The other side sucks. My side is better. You know, it wouldn't would be too long before a civil war would break out. Well, that's let's what, say, let's say there's no civil war, right? Let's say uh, these countries say, look, we can't get past these issues. Uh, we're going to trade with one another. We maybe even can have some mutual defense arrangements with one another. But um, we're not going to allow New York, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C. to tell Wyoming, Texas, and South Carolina what laws we should have about where transgender people can go to the bathroom. Bathroom. Let's say you were guaranteed no civil war. Would you want two separate countries? No, it's too much. Too yeah. much. Uh, like the other call was saying too. You got what about when you got to you got to cross the border? You got to pull out the passport, go to check, and right. Well, I I said, I said that. Currency. I said that. Yeah, they made a couple of good points. Yeah, I think most of the points you cited were mine, but I'm not taking anything away from the caller. 800-848-9222. Paul, get back to work, by the way. Mary Beth is on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Hi, how are you? Good. I'm throwing logic to the wind. Years ago, I do remember that there was talk of having Long Island and New York City break away from New York State. Now, as a Long Islander, 
I don't, you know, I moved back here because I loved it so much. I grew up here and I am tired of living in a democratic state, but I'll be damned if I'm going to move. So maybe Suffolk County should just break away from New York and I'd be one happy camper. Again, I'm not talking in a logical way. I'm just talking emotionally. I am so so sick of people being at each other's throats and i am sick of being dictated to by the woke left right well so it, it, it is interesting mary beth that proposal the proposal for a state of long island has been mentioned by people going as far back as uh, 1896 uh, the big sugar mm-hmm. refiner adolf mollenhauer claim that other big cities in New York did not take Long Island into account when making decisions and were spending money without benefit to Long Island's interest. Now, you go back to the 21st century, March of 2008, the Suffolk County Controller proposed a plan that would make Long Island the 51st state. He said that all Long Island taxpayers' money would stay on Long Island. Now, what's the difference really between that argument and the one that Marjorie Taylor Greene is making? Because we'd still be Americans, but we'd have our own state. She wants the country to break apart, as Mm -hmm. it was trying to do during the Civil War. That meant two different countries. I'm not saying two different countries, Frank, but, you know, I am so sick of, you know, you said, oh, you can be friends with these people. You can try as hard as you want, and they always throw it in your face. And I'm sick of it. I am sick of it. Lee Zeldin for governor of Long Island. Well, hey, thank you, Mary Beth. Uh, I uh, look so far, nobody has agreed with Marjorie Taylor Greene, including me. But uh, I'm curious if anybody thinks there's any merit to her idea. I mean, clearly, maybe some of her constituents do. 800-848-9222. Alex is in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. Hey, Frank, thanks for taking the call. I actually think it's a pretty good idea. Uh, on the world stage, it could be a problem because if you split up the country, also split up the military, so it wouldn't be as strong in terms of being able to fight against China. But I think if we have a Republican country and a Democratic country, um, then what's going to end up happening, uh, me being a Republican, is going to be good for because all the money, all the hardworking people are going to go to the Republican country. And I think most Big businesses and corporations are going to go to that country, and so you're going to have all the money on the Republican side of the aisle because the, the the corporations and the big businesses are going to know that if you if they stay on the half of the country that's Democratic, they're not going to have any good workers, any hardworking people because they believe in quiet quitting, they believe in victimization and all of that, and then eventually what we're going to see as well is that a lot of the people just random people from the Democratic side are going to come to the Republican side, kind of like we see people leaving from New York to Florida. So if we split it in half and we have Republican and Democrats, and then we eventually get all uh, the majority of the people from the Democratic side coming to the Republican side, it's going to be one it's going to end up becoming one Republican country at the end of that game. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a very interesting interpretation, Alex. I don't know that that would happen. I don't know that you would see a lot of the uh, cultural liberals that uh, dominate Wall Street, for instance, uh, and their big issues are issues like gun control and abortion and gay marriage moving to states that would be— I think most Wall Street people are 
are actually, you know, Republicans. Well, no, they're Republican for economic reasons. But on on social issues, I can tell you they are not moving to a state where uh, drugs are prohibited, uh, gay marriage is illegal, and abortions are prohibited. And that's what would happen if you had a red uh, country. Uh, Now, um, a friend of mine writes me about the currency issue, because I brought up the currency issue. You know, the euro does show that you can have many countries and with one currency. Okay, that's a that's a fair point. I should have mentioned that. I didn't think of that at the time. Thank you. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Hi, I'm in favor of uh, a national split into two different nations. Shake hands and part peacefully. Tell me why. We're watching the criminalization of a political party. You're seeing anyone affiliated with Donald Trump being his lawyers. Anyone associated with him being jailed, you're watching the January 6th people who committed tre- treason or trespassing and things like that. These people are being jailed for six and eight years. And I think that uh, I think this is East and West Germany. Which side of the wall do you want to be on? So you're all for this Marjorie Taylor Greene proposal? Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. I'm glad we're hearing from some people that uh, are given the alternative view. 800-848-9222. Don is in Long Beach. Hello, Don. Hello, Frank. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you. Good, good. I disagree with Marjorie Taylor Greene. First of all, there are things like population shifts. So you could have a state that would secede, a blue state, let's say, and then all of a sudden people would migrate to that state. Um, making it a red state, and they'd want to re—you know—they would want readmission. It would create a tremendous amount of instability, and it would weaken us to no end. And I, I wouldn't want to see that. All right, Don. Hey, very well reasoned. Very well reasoned. Alex Barnard is here to enlighten us. Hello, Alex Barnard. I never thought I'd say I, I agree with Marjorie Taylor Greene, but I do. You see, you're for this national divorce idea. Yeah, and Tell only me be, why? Only because. Do you know how embarrassing it is that I have to say I'm from the same country as Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and Lauren Boebert, and all those idiots? If they had their own country, I would be so happy. But don't you think – I mean there are a lot of conservatives that feel the same way about the liberals that I mentioned, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They feel that same way, right? So um, – and I, and I get your frustration, but – you're never going to live in a country where there's nobody that you disagree with, right? So isn't right. it isn't the better solution to find a way to at least coexist with those kinds of folks that you disagree with? It is, and I'm mostly being facetious. I don't act. I don't actually re- agree with her. I mean, I do think that. Uh, I, I do sometimes think that when I am frustrated, but at the end of the day, we are a country. We. We have always been united and, you know, in – well, not always, obviously, during the Civil War. But in terms of national crises bringing people together, I mean, the callers are right. It's uh, unfortunate, but we are able to put aside our differences when it really does matter. Uh, well, it, good point, though, uh, by Alex. 800-848-9222. You know, there's a very interesting picture, and it's never on TV. I can never understand why this picture is never on TV. And it's got a great cast. This TV, this especially now, given what's going on in the cable news climate, this picture should be on television every week. It's called The Second Civil War. And I think it was a made-for-TV movie. It was a made-for-TV movie. I think it was made for HBO. But for some reason, I'd never seen it on HBO. Listen to this cast. Phil Hartman as the president. James Coburn. James Earl Jones. Bo Bridges. Bunch of other interesting people. I think Dan Hedaya is in it. 
And it's the second civil war and it breaks out because Idaho wants to secede from the union. And then you see a lot of other states kind of following Idaho's lead. And it's it's a comedy, but it's a dark comedy that raises some interesting prospects about where we are in terms of polarization. And this film came out in the 90s, and it's proven prophetic in many different ways. All right, those of you that are on hold, we'll give you an opportunity to comment in a moment. We've got a lot of other stuff to get to throughout the course of the program. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hotel California. I love this song. I'm not the biggest Eagles fan in the world, but it's a great song. Uh, and uh, obviously, I mentioned it earlier because it's the, you know, the line where it says you could check in anytime you like, but you can never leave. That's essentially what the Supreme Court said about statehood. You want to join our country? You're stuck with us. Marjorie Taylor Greene says it's time for a national divorce. There's a lot of conservatives that can't stand the fact that liberal states and liberal policies have so much domain and so much control over their lives. There's a lot of liberals that can't stand the fact that there's so many conservative policies and uh, political issues that have domain over their lives. So what about a peaceful national divorce? Maybe be like Europe. They have the European Union. We could be the American Union. Common currency. Maybe we we deal together on certain issues related to trade. But when it comes to self-governance, the red states get to do their thing. The blue states get to do theirs. What do you think and why? 800-848-9222. Mark is in upstate New York. Hello, Mark. Uh, Yes, Frank. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I've uh, long ago, years ago, proposed something. It's like a modification of what you're talking about. Um, for instance, if, if somebody was conservative, uh, they can seek out conservative states. And then if they want even more, they're more conservative, find the most conservative parts of the conservative states. And somebody that's liberal can seek out liberal states. And, um, it's, it's sort of, 
in my opinion, it's sort of what you're talking about. Well, that's uh, sort of happening it, now. And in, in New Hampshire, they had the Free State Project. But even without the formal nature of it, you're seeing that more and more. I know a lot of New Yorkers that are moving to Florida, for instance, and they tell me, look, um, I, uh, I, I just I like the politics down there a lot better. I like the freedom down there a lot more than what New York has. And by the same token, I know a lot of people from the Midwest uh, who might have reasons that they wanted to move to liberal cities like San Francisco or New York. Uh, maybe these were states that didn't allow gay marriage or things like that, and they wanted to be around other liberals. Now, what's, uh, now I-, I think that's already going on. What Marjorie Taylor Greene is proposing is something very different. She's, su- she's not kind of suggesting what you're suggesting. She's saying, look, it's not right that Georgia has to follow policies that are made by D.C. and New York politicians. And we need, the only way we get around that is to have a separate country. But you don't agree. Why? Uh, well, I think the founding fathers had that in, in mind when they, when they did the uh, Electoral College. I mean, they were trying to, uh, long ago, defend against uh, bigger, you know, more populated areas uh, making the decisions for uh, everybody else. Okay. So, All right. Well, thanks, Mark. Yeah, I'm not sure. Clearly, though, even with the Electoral go- uh, College, Marjorie Taylor Greene's nightmare scenario, which is having to adhere to left-wing policies, even if you're in a conservative state, it still comes to fruition, right? I'll get back to your calls in a moment. I, I did have to tell you. I just I just had to tell you. So I w- woke up yesterday afternoon, and I realized it's uh, – well, let me back up. I don't know if everybody's brain works this way. My brain works uh, – like I start thinking of one thing, and within seconds, 10 seconds, maybe it's ADHD or something, or maybe everybody's like this. Within seconds, I'm thinking of something radically different, right? I could start by thinking about the Vietnam War, and then I uh, will end a minute later by thinking about the 1986 World Series, right? You just immediately make link to link to link. You know, uh, for instance, you think, uh, okay, you know, I'm going to have um, I'm going to have an apple as a snack because I'm hungry. Well, an apple is a food that's round, huh? I was on a cruise ship four years ago where that was a category um, in the family feud that we played on the cruise ship. Huh. I remember that cruise. That cruise was fun. My friend Joan was on that cruise. Hey, come to think of it, I remember Joan having a lump on the back of her neck that looked kind of weird at the time. I wonder if that was cancer. Oh, cancer. Kirstie Alley just died of cancer. Oh, Kirstie Alley was in She's Having a Baby with Kevin Bacon. Right? So... I don't know if everybody's brain works that way. My brain does that all the time. And I think maybe you hear it by these tangents that I go on because I deviate. You know, I don't rely on written material to make my points. But this happens all the time with me. All the time. Um, Do you do that, Matt? No? Or some, okay, well, sometimes. Okay, sometimes so it's not the constant struggle like it is. No, with me. but I'll I'll do a thing where I'll, I'll start thinking about something and I'll go like I'll be trying to trying to go to sleep and I go um oh, yeah I watch TV man I used to watch a Brady Bunch all the time mm, Flintstones no now I'm not going to be able to get the Flintstones out of my head I'm going to be thinking about the Flintstones all the time now huh and then I'll start thinking about something else and I go through the same sort of manic. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. Well, things. I do this constantly. For instance, there's a television on now with Tucker Carlson. Oh, Tucker Carlson. He stopped wearing a bow tie about uh, 20 years ago. 
Who does wear bow ties? Oh, there was a guy that ran for state controller in 2006 who, wear a bow, who wore a bow tie named J. Christopher Callahan. Who did he run against? He went out, ran against Alan Hevesy. Alan Hevesy ended up in prison. He ran, wound up in the same prison with Dennis Kozlowski. Oh, my friend Kyle O'Brien had a friend named Kyle Kozlowski. Oh, gee, Kyle just called me the other day. He said he was going away for a destination wedding. When is he coming back into town? Should I call him today? If I call him, do we have to make plans? You know, I do this, I mean, constantly. This is my whole existence is being, I don't want to say tortured, because I actually enjoy it, but being tortured to some extent by my own thoughts. So, yesterday's Ash Wednesday, and I wake up, and I realize it's Ash Wednesday, and I start thinking, i got to get to church today. i got to go and get ashes. Well, am I going to go for a full mass service, or am I just going to go somewhere for kind of drive-by ashes? And I'm thinking to myself, well, I, I do feel guilty because I haven't been to church a lot lately because of this issue with Carmine not being able to sit still for a whole church service. So I should probably try to find a full uh, a full mass service to go to. Which one should I go to? Should I go to the church that I normally go to or should I go to the closest one? Does it matter if I go to an Episcopal uh, parish or do I go to a Catholic parish? Hey, if I don't go to my own church, I'm not really going to get credit for showing up. Gee, when you don't get when you don't when you go to a church and you don't put those envelopes that they give you in the donation basket, how do people know that you show up? Hey, um, when you go to different churches all the time, uh, does your parish think you're just skipping class every Sunday? And who does go to different churches all the time? Oh, Joe Piscopo goes to different churches all the time. Uh, Joe Piscopo actually has a mass app where he can find the nearest Catholic church offering the nearest mass so he can make sure he's in church every Sunday. I'm not joking. This is all true. This is all going through my brain in a matter of seconds. And then, um, and because, and I think of Joe Piscopo because he's a very devout churchgoer. And then I start thinking, what did he do with his children? And I start thinking of all the ages that he has of his children because he has children in the neighborhood. I might be off a year or two, but not much. He has children. The oldest is, I believe, 42. The youngest is, I believe, 10. Right. So they run the gamut. And I might be off a year or two, but not much. And then I start thinking, all right, you know, there's uh, his oldest son, uh, Joey. There's his youngest son, Charlotte, who he calls uh, his youngest daughter, Charlotte, who he calls Charlie. Then uh, there's his other son, Michael, who's a great guitar player. And then I'm having a tough time thinking of the other two. Now, I worked with Joe Piscopo every day for six years. And he would mention his kids every hour of the four hours that we would work together for those six years. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. I can only think of three. Uh, you got you got Mikey, Joey, Charlie. Why can't I think of the other two? I said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember a song that he recorded with his daughter. What was her name? Or he dedicated it to her. He dedicated this song to his daughter, and I'm picturing it. I'm picturing it. I'm trying to think of the name, and I want to dedicate this song to my little girl, Alexandra. Okay, so I got four, and now I'm not looking this up. Now I am panicked. Why can't I remember the name of Joe Piscopo's fifth child? Now, obviously, it doesn't matter if I remember Joe Piscopo's five children's names, But I'm incredibly alarmed that this is my worst fear coming to light. 
that this is the very, very beginnings, the very early inklings of some sort of dementia, which is my greatest fear. It's really, you know, other than a loved one being murdered, God forbid, this is the only thing I really fear. And I, I'm terrified, absolutely terrified. And I'm sitting in bed wide awake now, just concentrating and thinking, what is the name of Joe's daughter? I've met her a hundred times. We've, I've had, she's come to dinner with Joe and me. I can picture her. I know where she goes to school. I know everything about her, but not her name. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. She's got the same name as Steve Adubato's daughter. Okay, I still can't think of it. And I am racking my brain. And at this point, I'm panicked that I cannot remember this girl's name. Now, again, I haven't spoken to her in five years, but it's really worrying to me. So then finally, it hits me. And I remember her name is Olivia. Olivia. And I can't tell you the sense of relief that I felt when I could name all five of Joe Piscopo's children. And it's funny. I never thought that this would, that I'd care this much about naming Joe Piscopo's children. But sure enough, I did. And I'm remembering the movie Still Alice. I don't know if you ever saw it. It was a great picture with uh, Julianne Moore and uh, Alec Baldwin and a bunch of other people that are, uh, Kristen Stewart, I think, is in it as well. And it's really good. It's sad. It's very tough to watch emotionally. But it's about a young woman who's in her, I think, 50s. And she starts to develop Alzheimer's. And she writes down on her phone a set of questions that she has to answer every day. What street do you live on? What are your children's names? And all sorts of stuff like that. And she's decided that when she can no longer answer those questions, she's going to leave herself instructions on how to kill herself. Because she doesn't want to live if she doesn't know her children's names and what street she lives on. And I thought to myself, I would never do that, even as scared as I am of dementia. I would never, you know, take my own life, you know, even under extreme circumstances like that. But I started to think my, to myself, well, those might have to be my questions. What are Joe Piscopo's children's names? And as long as I can still name all five of Joe Piscopo's children, then I think I, think I should be okay. So that was yesterday's adventure. I then did go to... Um, to church and uh, they did have a mass service and I stayed for the mass service. It made me sad because I, and I, I went to an Episcopal church, not the one that I normally go to, but I, it made me a little sad because there was almost nobody there. And I realized it was seven thirty, and it's a weeknight and Ash Wednesday is not a holy day of obligation. But I thought to myself, all right, I better stay. I could just get ashes and go, but there's only four or five people here. I feel bad that there's this big, beautiful church and no one's in it. And it really has made me resolve to figure out a way to get Carmine, uh, even though he's only a year and a half, uh, to figure out the situation of getting back to church on a regular basis. Because I, I, uh, I hate to be part of that, what I consider a problem, with no one going to church. And uh, there, you know, there, there are all these beautiful churches that no one's using. So uh, that was my day. And so begins a 40-day abstention from alcohol. So if you see me out anywhere for the next 40 days, 
this is a good time to offer to buy me a drink because I will not take you up on it. <laughs> I'll get a ginger ale or something. So those of you that are soldiering and with whatever your Lenten sacrifice is, good luck to you. I know it can be difficult. Continue with your calls in just a moment. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I want to encourage you to like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Uh, our apologies uh, for getting the link to the uh, podcast up later than usual today. Uh, Kenneth was uh, a little negligent in getting the, the podcast link to us. Uh, I was asked repeatedly by everybody that works here, you know, do you think that the fact that these guys are going to do their own podcast now, The Darker Side of Midnight, do you think that's going to lead them to neglect their own responsibilities, their existing responsibilities? I said, no, they're going to be fine. And sure enough, I hate to say it, but clearly, uh, clearly I was wrong. By the way, only doing things that anybody could do. uh, By the way, uh, I uh, saw that email from our program director that someone left a uh, can of Coca-Cola in Chris Libertini's studio. Did you see that at all? The email or the can? The email. Yes, I did see. Now, I asked our program director if it was a Coke Zero or a regular Coca-Cola, and he did not specify, but uh, I, I thought it was very interesting. Was that your can of Coca-Cola? It indeed was my can What? Why are I you bringing Coca-Cola totally in there? Well, let me tell you, first of all, let me tell you where this can was. It was not on the console, and this is the reason why I forgot about it, because... I know not to put things that can spill next to equipment. So the can of Coke was actually on the floor behind something where nobody walks or anything. So you couldn't even see it if you, unless you looked there, which is the reason I forgot it. But I knew by the tone of the email that they weren't too upset because of the location of it. Now, if it was right in front of the console, opened, mm-hmm. all hell would break loose, and for good reason. Well, uh, check out the darker side of midnight after this show every morning. You can check it out on the Red Apple Podcast Network.com. Got Bill Burns coming up in um, n- next hour. We're going to talk about where we are with these UAPs. Uh, but uh, let me try and squeeze in a few more calls on the question of national divorce. Ed is on Staten Island. Ed, what do you think? Uh, yeah, it's inevitable. We're going to break up. But uh, more to the point, uh, you have a condition called TLAC. It's very common. It's called thinking like a chick. You're a little <laughs> scatterbrained. Someone messaged me that it's associative thinking and that it's normal, but it's very common with ADD people. Uh, John in Brooklyn. Hello. Hi. I hate Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I'm a Republican. That's an absolutely stupid idea. We've had uh, periods in our history where we were even more divisive. Look back at the War of 1812. New England didn't want to fight against the British Empire because they were having a lucrative trade. And by the way, Frank, I know you didn't want to consider it, but uh, a good person to talk about the War of 1812 
would be my college professor, Gordon Wood. You should invite him on the program. I will be happy to do that. Um, are we coming up on any key War of 1812 anniversaries? Maybe. You know who's another good War of 1812 person? Brian Kilmeade, and he's going to join us in our fourth hour. If uh, you're in Alaska or Tennessee, demand to know why your station is not carrying our fourth hour. Uh, hey, Steve in Pearl River's been holding a while, but Steve, we only have about 40 seconds, but they're all yours. Thank you, Frank. Um, you know, I think that it is a ridiculous performance artist idea. I agree with that. And I, I was a little bit disappointed to hear people, somebody suggest, number one, that Democrats aren't hardworking and that January 6th people, it was simple. Steve, I got to end it there. I'm sorry. Yeah. If you want to call back tomorrow, we'll continue the conversation. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. There is no one. I enjoy talking to on the radio more than Bill Burns. Bill Burns is a scholar. He has more degrees than most thermometers. He is a gifted writer. He's written many books. He's written probably more books uh, than I have read. He has an ability to tell a story. He has an ability to research things, to explain things in a thorough manner. Like no one else, and perhaps most importantly, he's kind enough to always stay up late with us. Please join me in welcoming New York Times bestselling author of many books, including The Day After Roswell, the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia, the publisher of UFO Magazine, an elected official in the state of Pennsylvania, Dr. William Burns. Bill, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Frank. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. The last time we spoke was, I think, about two weeks ago today. And since then, the whole world has changed because we spent a lot of time two weeks ago talking about this uh, purported Chinese spy balloon that was shot down and what that could have meant, what it said about uh, what China was doing, what it said about what the United States was doing in terms of aviation, air defense and the UAP issue. And since then... In succeeding days, the United States shot down three more UFOs. And these are the definitions of UFOs. We can't identify them, but they were flying and they were objects. Now, since then, uh, the government has said they were not Chinese, not harmful, not extraterrestrial, but they can't tell us what they are and they're not going to try to look anymore to recover these devices that we shot down. Tell me what your take is on this and if these three objects have altered your view at all of what your initial reaction was to the Chinese spy balloon. Well, first, the reason we identified these three objects at all uh, from NORAD is that we hadn't tuned our radars to these kinds of objects. What the Chinese balloon did, and and I believe we've been sitting still for Chinese balloons and Russian balloons and for years, um, ever since um, 
the 1960s when President Eisenhower negotiated open skies with Nikita Khrushchev. He also negotiated open skies with the extraterrestrials. But uh, so we've been sitting still for this for years until it became a political hot potato, which it did under the Biden administration. And once we were aware and once the public, by we, the, uh, uh, the public, were aware of these things, suddenly the government had to react. So they fine-tuned their radars. They made them more refined. They opened up the aperture. They suddenly would, uh, uh, were announcing the discovery of other balloons. But the incredible thing was, look at what we did with these balloons, like Huron over in Alaska, we used $500,000 Sidewinder missiles, $500,000 a pop to shoot down a $25 balloon. I mean, and we did it three times. It I sounds like you're skeptical. The, I'm very skeptical um, because we've been living with this for over 60 years. But suddenly the politics of ballooning and balloons for surveillance were used ever since Napoleon. Um, but the politics of this causes us at a time we're fighting over the debt ceiling, fighting over this, fighting over social security, spending $2 million right off the pop shooting down balloons. And by the time we shot that, I understand the Chinese balloon because it had <clears throat> Chinese technology for data and intelligence gathering. Now that's our property. Now we own it. That's one thing. But these other balloons, the government won't even tell us. And are they flying UFOs? Probably not. Um, so I'm, I'm very skeptical of this. So why do you think the government is offering no explanation? Do you think it's because they don't know what they've shot down? Do you think they don't want to tell us for some reason? And if it's the latter, why would they not want to tell us? I think they simply don't know. I think what the government did was they shot down balloons from private companies, companies that believed they were in the right flying balloons over this territory. I mean, what are they gathering? I understand the premise of the Open Skies Agreement. When Eisenhower and Khrushchev first talked about it back in 1961-62, what they were talking about was if you do passive data gathering, you won't make a mistake about the other side's intentions. That was the premise. And if China is planning, which I think it is, I think this is in the works right now. We're sitting on the verge of World War III. I think that what China is, is planning is an invasion of Taiwan. I think that the Russian invasion, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, if that is allowed to succeed, our next war will be China invading Taiwan. And this will be a repeat of World War II, the, uh, of the, um, a fight in the Pacific, an Asian war in the Pacific, and a European war in the Atlantic. Well, and if Iran is allied with Russia and China, it could be a fight in the Middle East as well. But we'll put, uh, we'll put that aspect of it uh, aside for just a moment. 
you you indicated that you didn't think these three objects were you use the term UFOs, even though they technically are UFOs. But when we have met, we use that term UFO post Roswell, as you know better than anybody, it's generally applied to some sort of extraterrestrial craft or something. Why are you, why are you inclined to think that these three objects were not extraterrestrial in nature? Well, a, a couple of reasons. One, the, gov- it, uh, the government still, to this very day covers up. And if they were, um, <clears throat> once they had to shoot these things down, if, first of all, if they were alien uh, technology, you have a, a, a real alien UFOs, I don't think they'd be shot down by a Sidewinder missile. Why would I say that? Because we have been chasing UFOs in the skies ever since 1952 when the UFOs invaded Washington, D.C. We shot one down in West, over West Virginia in 1952, but we haven't shot any UFOs. Well, there's one over um, Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany in the 1970s. But by and large, when a UFO wants not to be shot down, they're not shot down. Look at the Navy pilots in 2011 and 2014 getting trying to get radar locks on those objects uh, off the San Diego Naval Base in California. They tried again and again, and these objects broke the radar contact, and the pilots were finally laughing and gave up. So this year, if we were trying to shoot them down, we would have missed. They would have broken the radar mm-hmm. lock. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking. They're not foreign. They're not alien technology. A while ago, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Bill Burns, New York Times bestselling author of many books, including very apropos the week of President's Day, UFOs and the White House. What did our presidents know and when did they know it? A fascinating book that I actually own that we'll get into a little bit. You said in one of our conversations, maybe a year or two ago, actually, that a lot of these objects that were appearing on radar, maybe even the Nimitz, uh, the Nimitz encounters, that maybe they weren't uh, alien, maybe they weren't extraterrestrial, terrestrial, but maybe they were some sort of craft developed by American military contractors, possibly even as a result of reverse engineering alien technology. Are are you still of the belief that a lot of these UAP sightings could be the work of military contractors? Yes, I think so. I think that what happened after the Roswell crash, it got, this is, we're, we're back in 1947 under Harry Truman. And first of all, nobody knew what the crash was. All we knew was that it was a technology we didn't have. The first thought was it was a Japanese fire balloon that for some reason hung over the Atlantic for two years after World War II and finally came to rest in Roswell. That was the initial thought that it it might contain um, anthrax or explosives. It didn't. The problem was that even before the military got to this, and there were two crash sites at Roswell, that even before the military got there, the local civilian authorities, the fire department and the Chavez County Sheriff, George Wilcox, got there first. And they saw what they saw. And they told their children 
Because mm-hmm. I spoke to the children of Roswell. They told their children what they found, the little creatures, the, uh, uh, the device split open against the arroyo. And a couple of creatures were still alive. By the time the army got there, this thing had gotten into the media. So the first thing they had to do, and this is where politics gets involved. The first thing they had to do was grab the person who discovered the wreckage in the first place, Billy Brazel. And this goes all the way back. Talk about American history to the um, the um, Billy the Kid and Sheriff Pat Garrett. The Brazels, in a cattle rustling scheme at the end of the 19th century, they killed Pat Garrett. Pat Garrett was Billy Bonnie's friend and, 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 and escorted him to Mexico so he wouldn't be hanged. The, the, the people who were victimized by Billy the Kid killed Pat Garrett. The government knew that and used it on Brazo to force him to recant his entire story. So the civilian people, the sheriff, the, all there, and the military played catch-up, and they played catch-up by successive false cover stories until Washington. So this, what we're dealing with the Chinese blue and those little objects now dates all the way back, mm. all the way back to 1947, when if you can't identify things in the sky, if you can't control what's in your sky, deny it, cover it up. And that's what happened. And we're talking and that's with, what's happening now. Talking with Bill Burns. Uh, Bill, do you think it's a possibility, you know, there seems to be a very real possibility that at least one of these objects was some cheap hobby balloon. You referred to it as a, you know, a $15 device that uh, would have had the right to be where it was when it was shot down. And there was one a balloon hobbyist group out in the Midwest, I believe, that's claiming that it was their balloon. Do you think that the reason the government may not be saying what these objects are could be as simple as they would be embarrassed if they spent uh, a half million dollars three times over to shoot down a $15 hobby balloon? Absolutely. And this is the same. These are the same folks going to Congress and saying, raise the debt zone again. I get why they're saying it. But, I mean, they're saying it at the same time. They're spending $2 million on shooting down toy plastic balloons. Uh, and, I mean, oh, when I was teaching, I mean, I'm, the first time, 1,000 years ago, the, um, we had, in our science department, we were, they were launching phys, uh, uh, balloons into the atmosphere. I mean, this was back in the 1970s. So, I mean... If we were in danger of being shot down by the Air Force because we're launching a balloon to pick up weather patterns over Trenton, New Jersey, um, that would be insane. But I think the politics of the time were caught basically with our pants down. They're saying, look at the Chinese. They're, they're flying a balloon over us. And now, once we fine-tune the radars that we're not bothering with, now we see – toy balloons all over the place and that's what we're shooting down of course we're embarrassed uh, let me shift gears a little bit there was an article in the washington per washington post two days ago strange dna found in the desert offers lessons in the hunt for mars life this is a story out of chile the atacama desert 
What exactly was strange about this DNA, and how could it offer lessons in the hunt for Martian life? First of all, the Chilean desert, um, that climate approximate the climate, approximates the climate of the Martian deserts. <clears throat> so there's a similarity between that desert and Martian deserts. And the fact that scientists have found bacteria whose DNA is unlike anything on this planet. Now, you know that back in 1976, that particular Mars mission picked up methane and other gases that are the result of biological processes. So the question is, if, if those tests were valid, what are biological processes doing on a supposedly quote-unquote dead planet? The planet's probably still alive. Now there are new theories that in Martian lakes, there's still water on Mars, it's under the surface, it's near the poles, and that in there, there are signs of early Martian life. If, which is what SETI scientists have argued, that chunks of Mars broke off early, let's say, 3 billion, 3.25 billion years ago when, when, the, when the solar system was forming, it was under attack by all kinds of meteors and asteroids, breaking things off the planet, blowing stuff off the moon, blowing stuff off Earth. But in one particular case, chunks of Mars were blown off by asteroid impacts, fell to Earth into what will become the Arctic Oceans, of the Arctic Oceans. And there, that's where they fostered life. So when we were talking with folks on SETI, when we were doing UFO hunters, they were arguing, we're not Earthlings, we're Martians. What if the DNA they found in the Chilean desert was in fact the result of rocks, asteroids that fell from Mars. And in that desert right now is proof that the Earth was bombarded with alien life. And that's what scientists think, that this is the proof that we've been bombarded by alien life, life not from this planet. Now, uh, this could be just bacteria, right? It doesn't necessarily mean there was intelligent life on Mars, right? Right, exactly. It could be bacteria. It's true. I mean, and but bacteria can live in space, and DNA can live in space. And you know the theory of panspermia that, uh, 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 that Crick and Watson developed, which was that an advanced, that because... DNA can live in space, that an advanced race of extraterrestrials, say, for millions of years ago, populated the entire known universe, including us, with DNA. So in other words, there is human life or humanoid life spread throughout the universe. And when folks like a plumber at the Roswell Army Air Force Base, the 509th in 1947, uh, a fireman, uh, people who've seen these things. 
uh, a lieutenant colonel in the Marines who won the Battle of Okinawa, these uh, um, Marion Magruder, these people, they all saw and reported what they saw about aliens. And the one common descriptor they used was they look like us. Wow. Even at Roswell, they said uh, uh, that this one person, this plumber, was standing outside the hangar, spoke to his daughter, hanging out, and he didn't tell her a thing about it until after he got his diagnosis of fatal cancer, fatal lung cancer. And he was dying. And he took his daughter out into the woods so nobody could hear them. And he told them this story, that he was standing. He's a plumber, right? Working at the hangar at the Army Air Force Base. Just one of scores of general civilian contractors. All of a sudden, he sees a hubbub down at the base entrance. Lights, sirens, military device, everything. Then they come right at him. And he said, what's going on here? They come at him, and that's when he sees medics carrying an alien on a stretcher. Four and a half feet, but looked human. And the alien looks up at this plumber. And the plumber says, I knew from when the alien looked at me that he was dying. And they took him inside the hangar. Once he's inside the hangar, a bunch of MPs slam this guy against the wall and said, you open your mouth, you're going into the desert, you're never going to be found. And then a captain walks over and says, you guys get away from him. He works here. I know who he is. You're not going to talk about this, right? The guy says, yes. He says, fine. It's over. And the MPs walk away. That plumber didn't talk about it until the right before he died when he told his daughter. The same thing happened with Sheriff George Wilcox. Brazel brings in a bunch of debris. He doesn't know what it is. Found it on the ranch. Gives it to George Wilcox. What Wilcox does, he's the sheriff. He puts it in the Chavez County Jail in Roswell. Then calls the Army base. They come out and they read him the riot act. Don't talk about this. So from the very, very first moments, we have been covering this stuff up. And it it hasn't changed over the years. Why? Because we don't know the answer. Or worse, we do know the answer, and we ain't revealing it. Well, all right, we're going to continue in just a moment with Bill Burns uh, talking about a wide variety of subjects. If you want to call in, we'll try and get to some of your questions throughout the hour. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue our conversation with Bill Burns, author of the book UFOs. And the White House in just a moment. What did our presidents know and when did they know it? Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Midnight in the desert 
Shooting stars across the sky This magical journey Will take us on a ride Filled with the longing Searching for the truth Will we make it till tomorrow Will the sun shine on you Midnight in the desert And we're listening This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by one of our favorite guests covering a wide variety of subjects. We've got alien bacteria in the desert. We've got three UFOs shot down by the government. We've got a whole lot more. Bill Burns is the author of UFOs and the White House. Bill, uh, what was, you know, it was George Washington's birthday yesterday, and a lot of us think we know a lot about George Washington, but one thing that uh, we don't necessarily learn about in the second grade when we're learning about Washington crossing the Delaware and him being the first president is that George Washington was also probably the first president to have a UFO sighting. What was the nature of his UFO sighting, and and what's the sourcing for this? Well, first, the source is even more important than the sighting, because the source was George Washington's own journal. President Washington, or General Washington at that point, was so absorbed with the fact that his troops wintering in Valley Forge Really a dreadful winter, 1777, dreadful winter. Wintering in Valley Forge, no shoes, no clothes, no money, and their crops were all destroyed because they're busy fighting the war instead of bringing back their crops. Remember, um, uh, 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 the colonies in 1776, 1777, these were all farmers. We had no technology, really. So um, these farmers had to leave their farms and fight a war. They were fed up. They said, you know what? This is crazy. We're going to die here. Get us out of here. They wanted to go home. So Washington goes into the woods and outside of Valley Forge. I live near Valley Forge. Washington goes out to Valley Forge to pray. In the woods, and this is from his journal, in the woods he sees a glowing orb floating over his head. He's astounded. Out of the orb jump what he calls little green figures. Then he sees a white-robed figure which explains to him, which shows him the disposition battle plans for the Revolutionary War and prophesizes that the colonials will win the war and become the United and become America, the United States of America. He sees that. That gives him hope. Then, a hundred years later, the ghost of George Washington appears to General McClellan in Washington, D.C. at the outset of the Civil War, doing the same thing, showing him the battle plans. Unfortunately, Lincoln fired McClellan and hired Grant, but but, but, but that was George Washington. He was also the first president to see a ghost in the... Um, French and Indian War, Washington led the Virginia colonial militia attached to General Braddock's assault on Fort Duquesne. Fort Duquesne, modern Pittsburgh, 
was this hub that connected the three rivers, the Allegheny, the Ohio, and, and the, um, and, and the uh, Monongahela, and from the Great Lakes to the, to the Mississippi. Very important route. Washington, uh, Braddock decides the Indians were picking apart the British. Just the Delaware Indians knew how to fight from trees. They had muskets. The, the British couldn't advance. Braddock decides he's going to force a crossing across the Monongahela, which he does, get shot and wounded. Washington sees this, commands, he commandeers a cart, horses, the militia, they cross the river. An Indian chief, a Delaware chief, has Washington in his sights, Frank. He aims the flintlock at him, pulls back the flintlock, and suddenly he says the great spirit descended upon Washington, descended upon him, and protected him. And the chief put down the gun and said, when I see the great spirit, I stop. Wow. Flash forward 20 years to the revolution. Washington is out in the woods in Valley Forge. And after he sees that orb, he sees that very same Indian. He sees him. Problem. That chief had died the week before. It was Washington who appeared to Eisenhower in the White House and showed Eisenhower where the structural flaw was. That's why during the 1950s, Eisenhower had to leave the White House and stay at the at an office building because um, the White House needed reconstruction. Now, the, what about that anecdote, for instance? What is the sourcing for that Washington's ghost Eisenhower meeting? Uh, that was McClellan himself. General McClellan said he couldn't believe he looked up and he saw this figure robed in white. And the figure says to him, century, because McClellan had fallen asleep. The rational argument is this. I will now be the psychologist giving a rational argument. McClellan fell asleep in his semi-sleep state. He was dreaming about Washington, showing him the, uh, the battle plans, foresaw the battle plans of the Civil War. That would be the conventional psychological argument. But McClellan didn't believe in that. He thought he saw Washington's ghost. And it gets worse, Frank, because at the Battle of Gettysburg, the main volunteer regiment was going the wrong way um, to set up on Little Round Top Hill. And a figure robed in white on a white horse and a three-cornered hat, I'll tell you the source of this, leads them directly to the hill. They take positions on Little Round Top. The Confederates picket attacks. They attack the hill. The Union soldiers from Maine run out of ammunition. What are they going to do? They're about to be overrun. Suddenly, the figure appears again on the white horse, draws a sword, and says, follow me, charge. The Maine volunteers run down the hill, wipe out the Confederates, and picket says, I will never fight the Maine volunteers again. They blunt the charge. What's my source for this? The Secretary of the Army, who mm. became the president of Bowdoin College, he wrote down about the figure robed in white, and it's in Army records now. Uh, but you, you alluded to the, that Eisenhower also saw Washington at the White House. H- how do we know that? Well, it supposedly Eisenhower revealed it. So the 
So what I would love to do on my bucket list is talk to David Eisenhower and Julie Nixon Eisenhower Mm. because it was Julie Nixon Eisenhower's father, Richard Nixon, who, along with Ronald Reagan and JFK, were the strongest UFO presidents. I mean, Ronald Reagan was actually summoned into politics by extraterrestrials. He's driving down PCH. You know, PCH is highway number one in California, right along the Pacific coast. And he's driving down with Nancy Reagan to attend a party at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. It's a surprise party for William Holden. They were friends. And he's driving down and suddenly over the highway, he sees a giant UFO. The UFO hovers over his car and then floats over the Pacific and sinks into the water. Reagan arrives at Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, and he is wild, crazy wild. He's saying, you won't believe what I just saw. And he tells everybody at the party what he saw. And he says, here's the mysterious thing. I received a message. And the message was, leave acting, go into politics. And he credits his run for governor, his supporter, Barry Goldwater, and his run for governor of California as inspired by extraterrestrials. Gets worse. Gets worse. Tells people at the party. Who tells me about this? Lucille Ball. I love Lucy. And she tells me the whole story of what happened with Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan gets into office. Who is he briefed by? George H.W. Bush, who was head of the CIA. And Bush briefs Reagan on everything. Bush and Casper Weinberger brief Reagan. That's why Reagan goes, tells um, uh, Gorbachev, what if aliens invaded us? Wouldn't our small petty differences erase? He says the same thing in front of the um, General Assembly at the United Nations. So here's what happens. At a screening in the White House of Steven Spielberg's E.T., they're all, all the folks are milling around after the film ends. They're basically commenting on the film. Reagan summons Spielberg over. And Steven Spielberg stands there with Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan. <clears throat> and Ronald Reagan, get this, he whispers to Steven Spielberg, he says, you and I are the only ones in this room who know that film is not fiction. <laughs> how so, about that? The, and then he starts complaining about the credits and makes it, oh, Ronnie, stop it. That's how they do things nowadays. What's my source of this? Steven Spielberg. You know, of the modern presidents, you alluded to uh, President Truman and of everybody, you know, uh, post-Washington what would you say the first one was who had some firsthand knowledge of UAPs or UFOs or extraterrestrials? Was it Truman or does it predate Truman? Well, it was probably FDR because Franklin Delano Roosevelt was ostensibly in charge of the uh, enrichment of nuclear facilities for um, the first atomic bombs we dropped on Japan. And FDR received reports 
that there were strange objects hovering over Oak Ridge and over and in Washington. That as soon as we began, and I believe there's a, I have a theory of this, that as soon as we began, the one thing that could destroy the planet, yes, there's a period of climate change, there are floods, there are fires, yes. But the one thing that could wipe out human beings on this planet is a nuclear war. I mean, if you look at any of the scenarios, there's no such thing as a safe, tactical nuclear war. If there is a nuclear exchange between parties, that is the beginning of the end of humanity, of human civilization on this planet. And yes, the extraterrestrials, which we are, I mean, we, we are E.T. The extraterrestrials, our colonial overlords, do not want this colony to be destroyed by itself. So they began in the 1940s surveilling where we were enriching uranium and plutonium. Remember, we enriched uranium for the one bomb on Hiroshima and plutonium for the next bomb on Nagasaki. So they surveilled our enrichment of nuclear um, source material for these bombs to see what we were doing. In 1962, for example, was it 62 or 66? But UFOs appeared over Maelstrom Air Force Base. The um, people who guard the base, remember the bases are underground, but on the surface there is a security detail. And the security detail sees a hovering red light over the base, a hovering red light that what's so strange is it doesn't move. It just hangs over the base. The board, which controls the, the, uh, the ballistic missiles, it is hardwired. No radio. This is thick cable that connects the, the control room with the actual missiles in the silo. And when the missiles are in a go mode, when they're ready to go, when they can be programmed, launch codes entered, fueling begins, the board is green. When the missiles are offline, there is a no-go signal from the board. When they see, when, when there's a report of this hanging red light, suddenly all the missiles in that silo they go offline. There's a no-go signal. Nothing the launch control officers can do can get the missiles back online until the red light disappears and the missiles come back online. It's a clear message. It happened at Maelstrom and it happened at Minot. It is, you will not launch these missiles unless we allow you to. Mm. Same mm. thing happened in Russia. Same thing happened in Russia in the 1980s. Suddenly, the nuclear missiles in their silo go, go hot. They start to fuel themselves. The launch codes are entered. They're going to attack the United States. They're going to start a world war. The Russian missile controllers are in a panic. They radio Moscow. Shut this thing down. <clears throat> Moscow Center can't shut it down. The missiles are about to launch when suddenly the light disappears and the missiles would um, return to the Russian control. 
the message is clear. UFOs don't have to hover over the White House anymore. Mm. They simply affect our missiles. Uh, a lot of people eager to chat with you, and if you want to jump on board, we'll try and get to you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We're talking with Bill Burns. He's the author of the book, UFOs and the White House. What did our presidents know, and when did they know it? It's published by my favorite publisher, Skyhorse Publishing, which is the, you know, of all the guests that we have on this program, uh, Alan Dershowitz, Jesse Ventura, it's always amazing to me how many of them are Skyhorse authors. Uh, they always seem to be, whether it's Woody Allen or Richard Belzer, they always seem to be the publishing house, or Robert Kennedy, they always seem to be the publishing house that's willing to publish the books that are outside of acceptable mainstream conventional wisdom. 800-848-9222. Anthony is in New Jersey. Anthony, you're on with Bill Burns. Hey, Mr. Morano, Mr. Burns, thank you for your time. Sure. Um, my question is this. Uh, if you want to explain something that has a lot of proof, what, what about uh, Billy the Palladian in Switzerland? And, you know, Stern spent a year at his house. Um, Roosevelt was there for a week. Um, they have a thousand-page uh, manifest that he wrote. Um, a guy with a fifth-grade education writing in a, in a manifest that they didn't even know what quarks or, or anything about time travel at the time. And then 10 years later, Stern's like, wow, this guy's talking about time travel. That's what he's talking about. How do you have that information? Is that and the story? Are you talking about Billy Meyer? Billy Meyer, yeah. Billy, right. They call him Billy the Palladian. Gotcha. Billy okay. Myers. Yeah. Got it. Okay, yeah, yeah. let me. Uh, you yeah, have Red Bull National Park. Sure. Uh, thing documented. Bill, you have know, you. By, by, have, by military. Thank you, Anthony. Bill, have you followed the case of Billy Meyer? And, and what's your take on it, if you have? Yes, and I think it is amazing because Billy Meyer. A guy, as you say, Anthony, with a fifth grade education is suddenly talking about physics and quantum physics and qubits and and how and how the universe works. <clears throat> then he starts talking about time travel and time travel is one of the most exotic theories of of physics you can possibly imagine. It deals with the speed of light. It deals with the whole idea of space time. How would. Um, a farmer with an elementary school education know about this. And Billy Meyer, th- there's a whole website dealing with him. It's called They Fly. And there is a whole group of people who are adherents to the Billy Meyer story of his being contacted by extraterrestrials who give him this knowledge. Yeah, it's certainly it's certainly wild. It's almost cult like the devotion that some people have to uh, just uh, exploring Billy Meyer and uh, furthering the story of Billy Meyer. We're going to continue with Bill Burns in a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you have questions, Bill Burns is the author of the book UFOs and the White House. It's available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. 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 midnight.
With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. It lingered there to touch your hair and walk with me all summer long. We sang a song and then we strolled. That golden sand Two sweethearts And the summer wind The great Frank Sinatra singing Summer Wind. This was a birthday bumper music selection from noted attorney and legal analyst Anthony Pope. He is a fine attorney, one of the finest in New Jersey. And uh, I've seen him on TV a great deal and on radio, and uh, he has a pretty good way about him uh, that, uh, that I really get a kick out of. We're talking with Bill Burns, a terrific writer. We so often take advantage of his expertise when it comes to UFOs, but he's written about a number of stories, including Frank Sinatra. If you read the book that he co-wrote with uh, Richard Lertzman, Dr. Feelgood, there's some very interesting stories in there about uh, Frank Sinatra, the Kennedys, and others, but we'll save those for another day. Uh, Bill, I did want to ask you, you know, so many, uh, you document so many instances in your book of Jimmy Carter, Richard Nixon, George Washington, Harry Truman, all uh, Eisenhower, Kennedy, all having some knowledge of what was going on with respect to extraterrestrials and UFOs. And you've indicated that you think that the fact that Barack Obama's production company is going to be producing this uh, Barney and Betty Hill abduction story as a movie when they could produce any movie they want is maybe a clue that disclosure could be coming sooner rather than later. It does seem that we're approaching a tipping point, whether it's all the space exploration that's happening, whether it's the Space Force, whether it's these UFOs, these reports from the Director of National Intelligence, the congressional legislation. It does seem like we're getting closer and closer to public acceptance. What do you see at this point as the next steps in the disclosure movement? And how soon do you think it'll be before the president or the government in general acknowledge that, yes, there have been extraterrestrial visitors to this planet? I think we will know. I think people will know this before um, 2040. I mean, that's what I really believe. I think that the public is being um, 
by the way, this is an experiment that began as early as the 1930s. But I think the public is being programmed for UFO disclosure. I think that programming, the programming of a national constituency, that's a major thing. That actually began in the 1930s. That began, um, I think, that the Rockefeller Foundation looked at what happened in Germany in the 1930s, looked happened, what happened in Russia in the 1920s after World War I when the Bolsheviks took over, then Lenin, then Stalin. And they said, look at what happened to these mass populations that were convinced of something that was ultimately detrimental to them. Can this same thing happen in the United States? So the Rockefeller Foundation hired Frank Stanton at Princeton University. Frank Stanton later became the head of CBS. Frank Stanton contracted with, contracted with Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater of the Air to do a live broadcast of a simulated Martian attack on the Earth the day uh, um, uh, War of the Worlds. And the hope was that this radio broadcast would so traumatize the public that um, they would react to an alien invasion. Just the opposite happened. It was a big yawn. And actually, in the book, UFOs in the White House, Frank Stanton complains to the British newspapers that there was no reaction to the... Um, War the World's broadcast. So that was a very early attempt to use UFOs as an attempt to program a mass civilization. I mean, John Kennedy was so amazed. I mean, I'm just wondering if the Obamas are going to cover this when they do the story of Betty and Barney Hill, because the person affected most by that was JFK. JFK was so exercised by the story of Bonnie and Betty Hill, which took place in 1961, his first year in office, when he's, um, he, he immediately said, we have to go to the moon by the end of the decade. That was the reason for that. It wasn't just the Soviet success in launching satellites. It was the knowledge that there were extraterrestrials. So JFK said, let's go to the moon and establish a moon base there. And that was the reason for it. He also knew when he took office about Area 51 because he told Marilyn Monroe in a, um, he told Marilyn Monroe in pillow talk, they were having an affair. She believed that he would divorce Jackie and marry her. And um, he told her about, this secret air force base in Nevada and the little men and the things from outer space they keep there. And the little men who live there, little men from outer space, those were his words. So Marilyn Monroe calls the justice, what calls Bobby Kennedy. She was having an affair with him too. And threatens him that he better return her phone call or else she would go public mm. about the secret air base on the little men from outer space. The phone call was tapped by J. Edgar Hoover, who loathed Bobby Kennedy and really disliked Marilyn Monroe because he didn't like to drink and she was a drunk. 
And so he, he, he tape recorded the phone call. And it was also recorded by Dulles at the CIA. That transcript of that phone call is in UFOs in the White House. And because Marilyn Monroe threatened, she died months later. You know, that is I've spent a lot of time talking about that with uh, with Mark Shaw, the reporter of uh, the uh, the lawyer and the author of uh, books like The Reporter Who Knew Too Much and several others. And that's exactly his contention that that uh, that Marilyn Monroe's enthusiasm and her willingness to threaten uh, what she had heard on the UAP issue that could have resulted in her her death. Uh, Bill, the hour always flies by whenever we speak. I will very much look forward to our next conversation. I want to encourage people to get UFOs and the White House. What did our presidents know and when did they know it? But, by the way, Bill, how new is this book? Is this something that just came out or is this uh, is this something that's been out a couple of years? No, this has been out a couple of years. And I'm probably going to, um, after the Obamas do the Betty and Bonnie Hill story, I think the whole world of UFO knowledge is going to change. Got it. Well, I think that's my prediction. uh, People should check it out. Bill, thank you so much. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Brent. Have a wonderful day. All right. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. Next hour, we got the AC report. A little later, Brian Kilmeade. Whole lot of other things to get to in the words of the great Bob Barker. Help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. One of the reasons that I think this show is fun is that as odd as I am and as out of the mainstream as I am on so many different things, I think, you know, I can do the kinds of things that uh, Howard Stern can't do, that Rush Limbaugh couldn't do, and I can experience things that normal people can experience. I could take the bus or the subway and nobody knows who I am. I, I can go into a uh, a cheese shop and not be mobbed with people wanting to talk to me. For the most part, I experience life just like a normal person. And I can relate to all the same kinds of things that a normal person deals with. So um, this subject that I'm about to bring to your attention is an exception. I'll explain why in a moment. But I I got an email from a listener yesterday that um, I can't relate to and I would like your help with. This listener, who I know, who's a a very nice uh, lady, she writes that she's been feeling bored lately. And I thought to myself, wow, I said, I actually don't remember what boredom feels like. And I was trying to remember what the la- when the last time was that I was bored. And honestly, I can't remember what the emotion 
or I, I, I guess it's an emotion, yeah, it, or a state of mind, right? I can't remember what that feels like to be bored. So I really wouldn't know what to counsel someone that's looking for ways not to be bored. And, you know, obvious. So I thought what it might be fun to do is to get your suggestions, because I think there are a lot of people listening right now who are up in the middle of the night who may be kind of lonely that might be bored. Hey, you know, I'm all for boredom in the overnight hours because maybe that'll get you to listen to me some more. But anyway, seriously, if someone is bored, an adult, not a 10-year-old, not a 14-year-old, an adult, someone between the ages of 30 and 90, what would you tell them? What is a tried and true method to alleviate boredom. The reason I can't, uh, I wish I had a little bit of boredom in my day. I know they say be careful what you wish for, so that's probably not true. I don't wish that I had more boredom because my life is just wonderful, but it's busy. It's busy, and, and it's so busy at times, it's on the verge of being hectic. You know, I, I feel like I need a, a traffic cop at times just to get through the day. Am I going here? Am I going there? What am I doing this? What am I doing that? Uh, If I had an extra hour a day, I would probably sleep. If I had an extra two hours a day, I would probably try to squeeze in some daily exercise. If I had an extra three hours a day, I would do more reading for pleasure. If I had an extra four hours a day, I would try to watch a movie or a television show. If I had an extra five hours a day, I would do some writing as well. If I had another six hours a day, you know, I would volunteer in terms of charity, civic, or political activities that interest me. If I had an extra seven hours a day, I would spend time organizing politically. You know, a lot of these uh, third-party and independent and electoral reform movements that I'm involved in, that's what I would would get involved with. And if uh, I had another, any extra amount of time, I always really enjoy spending with my son. So if I had another hour on top of all that, I would take him on some adventure or something, even if it's just for a walk. I mean, he's only 15 months old. We're not going to be uh, hiking through the rainforest somewhere. But I, I really just get so much joy out of spending time with him. So I really don't know, beyond what I just said, exercise, reading, watch a good movie, listen to the radio, listen to a podcast that interests you, do some writing, do some research. I really don't know what I would tell someone that's bored. Obviously, the, and that's where I'm going to ask for your help. I want to make, allow people who are listening to this program right now who might feel bored to make a list of things that they can do right now, right away, today, to alleviate boredom. And whatever it is, I, I'm all ears for your suggestion. 800-848-9222. I know the easy suggestion at times can be to um, spend time with a friend. Call someone that you haven't spoken to in a while, which I think is a great idea. And there was just a recent re- released longitudinal study on happiness that shows reaching out to someone has a tremendous multiplier effect in terms of happiness, both for the person that reaches out 
and the person that's on the receiving end of the outrage. But the reality is, and someone else sent me a an article the other day about the difficulty scientifically that adults have in making friends. Once you're over a certain age, it can be a little bit more difficult to make friends. So let's assume you're you, you're lonely and you're lonesome and you don't have a lot of friends and you're bored. What do you tell someone is a good way to alleviate that boredom? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Obviously, I think you should avoid the suggestions that I made um, or what I would do for my own self. But I, this is something I can't relate to because I don't know what it's like to be bored. I don't know that I ever was bored. Maybe it's because my brain is so busy doing all that associative thinking that uh, I I just sit there and entertain myself as I watch one thought go to the next. 800-848-9222. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hi, Frank. Uh, So what I do for boredom is, well, because during the day I work and then I have to deal with the wife and the dog and everything. Nighttime, when you come on, is my boredom time, my time to relax. So what I do is I constantly, I always draw and play guitar at night while I listen to you. And I find that it gets all your thoughts. You just keep thinking and you can draw and think about something else and listen to you at the same time. Well, I like that. I mean, drawing has never really been my thing. So it would not be, uh, it would not be for me, but, but I'm interested in the guitar playing, how do you manage to, doesn't the playing of the guitar or any sort of other music, doesn't it make it difficult to hear what's coming out of the radio? I have my guitar on low, and um, I just, I, I play, I don't really play songs, I kind of just like jam, I let, like, you know, I let the music just like flow out, and it just, uh, it, it's not as hard as you think, you could do both. All right. Hey, uh, guitar and drawing while listening to radio. I'll take it. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. How do you cure boredom in an adult? Kelly is on Long Island. Hello, Kelly. Hey, Frank. How are you? I used to call you once in a while at 10 in the morning. I'm not usually up at this hour. You moved, right? Ah, yes. I remember you, Kelly. Yes. It's (laughs) great to talk with you. How have you been? Um, I've been okay. I've been, I always enjoyed your show, so I'm glad I'm tuning in. Wonderful, but wonderful. I'm not particularly bored, but I don't have an active social life anymore. But I think I'm a lot like you, like all the things you named, that's what I kind of do. Um, I have a little more time now than some people. But the caller might have said boredom, but she might have meant lonely. And I think there's like a big difference because some people, I hate to say it, they didn't really develop a lot of interest as young adults or adults, and they just kind of live their lives bouncing off of other people. You're in a relationship or you have kids, and then if that dries up and they're not around, or after a while, like, what else can you talk about? They feel bored. You know what I think a lot of... uh, mind like you do, and you're creative. I love people, believe me, but I can go long periods of time without people because I have a lot of things going on in my mind that interest me. So she was listening to your show. She obviously is interested in things. I think she should volunteer and try to get to know more people like herself. A lot of people are very isolated now, um, and you're going with whoever you knew. And people are afraid to make new friends 
in general, but especially because everybody's so different now. You're yeah. so afraid to say the wrong thing. Hey, well said. Uh, well said, Kelly, on all fronts. And it's great to talk with you again. And, th- and thanks for listening. And whenever you're up late, please call me. You know what I think a lot of people might go through? And I don't know that it was the case with this particular listener, but I, I think a lot of people go through this. If you're retired, you spend so much of your day working, right? And you're working with a commute and the lunch at work. You're working maybe and commuting to and from work somewhere between 8 and 12 hours a day. And that's being conservative. Then if you include the social aspects of the workplace – that uh the, you know the the post work happy hours the uh lunches with friends the business events that you have to go to your work can take up an enormous amount of both your professional life and your personal life it takes up a lot of your time so let's say you retire at 70 or so all of a sudden you have 12 hours a day newly free and that's i mean you think about it That's over 70 hours a week. All of a sudden, that was previously occupied, that's now not. Now, you can't read for 70 hours a week. Well, maybe you could, but I think that's tough. You can't watch television for 70 hours a week. Maybe you can listen to radio for 70 hours a week. But I think some people might be experiencing this as they retire for the first time, is they're finding they all of a sudden have this time and they don't necessarily have the means to fill it. Maybe the kids have left the house and they don't have to worry about child rearing. Maybe their children or grandchildren have have moved far away or maybe they don't have grandchildren yet. What do you do to fill all that time in a way that's stimulating? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Robert in New Jersey, how do you cure boredom? Good morning, Frank. This is Robert. I'm a limo driver. I've called you before. I think you're awesome. Thank you. Um, I uh, I listen to you every single morning, and I think you uh, you get me started every day, and it's always on a positive note because you've always got positive things to say and very encouraging things and educational things, too. So um, I'd like to say that most of my time as a limo driver, I'm waiting for customers to come out of their homes, come out of their offices, come out, you know, come off planes. And uh, I do a variety of things. Uh, I say predominantly it's listen to the radio, listen to WABC is my favorite station. Um, but then secondly, um, I write. I'm a, I'm a writer, and I write about my adventures on the road. I've written an article every month for the past five years in a publication called Black Star News. And uh, I find that that's a lot of fun because it gives me a history about the driving that I've done over the past five years. And every story's true, but I don't reveal any confidential information like a passenger's name or address or anything. Well that like sounds that. great, uh, Robert. You've got yeah. to send me you've got to send me some of your writing uh, now and again. Oh, you have my email, sure, right? I sure, I sure do, Frank. Thank great. you. Uh, please do, Robert, thanks for listening. You know, it's funny, I always thought I would do really well in those jobs that require you to do a lot of driving or or uh, be alone for long stretches of time. Because I have the same enthusiasm for radio, and uh, that was just when there was terrestrial radio. But now that you have satellite radio and you could listen to podcasts, I think I could do that. 
like what Robert, I mean, I'm not a good driver, so I, I don't think I could do full time what Robert does, but something like that, like a, being a courier or a process server uh, or any job that does that involve a security guard, any job that uh, involves sitting around and doing a lot of waiting. I think I could handle really well because sometimes when I'm driving someone, I, there's a lot of pressure not to listen to my favorite talk stations because you have to kind of pretend like you're engaged with the passenger in the car and you have to talk to them. You feel a little bit of an obligation to, um, you know, to talk to them. You can't say, all right, shh, let me let me let me hear what uh, what Curtis is saying. You can't really do that. You know, I mean, if you get someone you can do that with, that's really fun. But I think that's the exception. Most people like me who enjoy listening to talk programming they will, you know, it's easy, much easier to do it by yourself than when there's someone there. So I always thought I would do well in that kind of a, a role for the same reasons that Robert does. But look, for some people can't listen to the radio all day or don't want to listen to the radio all day. What's another way to alleviate boredom? So uh, Kelly says, try to make more friends like yourself. Robert gives the combination of radio and writing, which I really like. I think more people can do a lot of writing. And it doesn't mean anybody has to read it. You know, even if you just do, you know, one of the things that I really do miss doing is I used to keep a journal and I stopped doing it. And uh, I found that really helpful. I found it helpful in organizing my thoughts. I found it helpful in organizing my day. I found it helpful in remembering things that I otherwise would have forgotten. And uh, I if I had a little more time, I would I would absolutely keep a detailed journal all the time. Um, and I think that's a that's a great suggestion. Do a little more writing. 800-848-9222. Ron is in New Jersey. Hello, Ron. Good morning. Uh, as a counselor, I don't make assumptions. I want to find out where the person's at. So if someone said they're, they're bored, I don't know what that means. They may be clinically depressed. Something's going on. So the issue is not the issue. It's not the word boredom. It's what does it mean for them? Uh, because most adults know there are a whole lot of things they can do with their life. So why are you not taking action is what I start with, not what is the action mm-hmm. you need to take. They may not be in a position to change yet. So we have to look at why they are the way they are first. Then we can talk about where we're going to go with, quote, boredom. So let's not assume we even know what that what's going on right, well, well, let, perspective. Let's assume... Uh, someone, you know, is newly divorced, newly retired, or was the caretaker for a parent that has now passed away, and they find themselves, their whole life's mission, be it being in a marriage, having a job, taking care of a parent, has now changed, and the big portions of their day, which were previously devoted to all the things that I just mentioned— those portions of the day are now free and they're not really sure how to fill them and they're having a hard time both being bored and lonely, what would you suggest to that person? Well, I'd say we're lacking proper planning. Things don't, quote, just happen except emergencies. This is something that was evolving. And what happened to future thinking about what you're going to do with your life? Right. Um, well, let's so say let's they didn't do it, right? Let, I understood. But let's say they didn't do it. Let's say they're in that position now and they're newly lonely and newly bored. What do you suggest to them? It's very simple. Do you want to change? And if so, let's work on it. It's that simple. 
All right, Ron. Thank you. You know, and I, I get, and I know where Ron is coming from, and I think it was a very good place. And I, you know, it's tough to disagree with what he said there, and it's it's also tough to disagree to his point without knowing the specifics of everybody that feels this way. But it really wasn't what I was looking for. I'm looking for practical tips like uh, that you can do. You know, for instance, one of the things that I really recommend to people is get involved in your local public access television station. You know, I was involved in my local public access television station for many years, and it's fun to create your own TV shows and get them on TV for free. And uh, it's fun even if you want to create your own programs, you could volunteer on other people's shows. It's a great way to meet people. It's a great way to engage with people. And um, it's a great way to kind of showcase your, you know, your create whatever your your interests are and whatever your creative itches that needed that need some scratching are whatever your interest is, you could do or work on a show about it. Right. And I find that's a great way to alleviate boredom. 800-848-9222. Mike is in Montclair. Hello, Mike. Great show. I love your style. Thank you. I'm 73 years old and I kind of forced into retirement account of COVID because Mm. I don't want to get it. And this is, you know, the second, actually going on to the third year. And it took a while to get acclimated, but now I'm in a groove. I wake up in the morning about 7.30, listen to WFAN as I'm doing breakfast, etc. Then I get my Star Ledger delivered. I read that, takes about an hour. I also get the New York Times delivered. That takes about an hour and a half. First morning, I can go two and a half hours straight. Then I get tired of reading. I check uh, one of the movie channels to see if there's any movies I want to see. I watch TV selectively. I just don't sit down and turn on the tube. If there's nothing I want to watch on television, I'll straighten up a little bit for about a half hour, an hour. Then I have the Wall Street Journal. That takes a while to read. Are we going to make it all the way to 1 a.m. When I first started doing this, I could do about two, three hours a day reading. Not at one time throughout the day. But I thought reading my mind would be like exercising. And the longer I read, the more I would be able to do it. And now I'm up to six and a half hours a day. Six and a half hours a day of reading? Right. Not consecutively. I I can't do it straight. The other thing is about the boredom. Like Richard Belzer died a couple days ago. Died of boredom. So I'll look at Richard Belzer on YouTube for an hour while I'm making lunch, okay? That book about um, he's talking about loneliness for for health, not boredom. So I went on YouTube and I listened to him talk about uh, loneliness for an hour. If you have a computer and the internet and you like to read newspapers, the whole world is out there for you. And I toggle back and forth between knowing just to, I can read and sometimes later in the day it's just a half hour. Then in the evening, it's uh, I only watch Jeopardy to see the um, 
the contestants when they say what they are and they do their little shtick for a minute, and with, I watch fin- Final with, Jeopardy. Wait, Mike, I, so you only tune into Jeopardy midway through to see? No, no, you, you know when they uh, yeah, like no, after I, the, the yeah, first I'm very familiar break. with the show. Yeah, but well, so that's when you tune in. You you don't watch the single Je- the Jeopardy round. No, no, you know that's sort of Jeopardy for a million years, so that doesn't interest me. The questions, and then I watch Final Jeopardy, <laughs> eat dinner, and then they have the old Dick Cavett shows on at nine o'clock, and I see who's on. I, I, like I said, I watch TV very, very selectively. Then at ten o'clock, they have the old Johnny Carson shows on, and I see who's on it, and if I want to see part of it, fifteen minutes. And then I'll go back and I'll read for another half hour. Do you remember when I said tired. that I forgot but what it was like to be bored? To read, all of a sudden, and I you remember. have access to the internet because there's always something in the newspaper that day. Yes. Yeah. Like with Belzer, he was married three times, and Belzer was. Uh, you know, I don't like to shame anybody by the way they look. When he was younger. He was good looking. As he aged, his face kind of changed a lot. Yeah, yeah, the face so, changed. Yeah. So I wanted to see what his wives look like. His third wife is gorgeous. She was an actress, beautiful figure, beautiful face. He won a suit against uh, Hulk Hogan for five million dollars, dropping Belzer on his head. You kidding? He, he bought a house in France. So while I'm reading, I'm taking notes on anything I don't know. If I read a word I don't know, I look up the word. Um, you know, you hear you hear you know, maybe me review I missed in the it, New York Times. What does Robert he do from six thirty to seven? That, you know, he's a I don't think he told us what, what his father was a big historian. He's a unless it's covered by the selective TV. And then you just follow it up, and everything is on YouTube or Fran Lebowitz is on some place. Her name pops up. So I was looking at Fran Lebowitz. Uh, uh, you know, also Bill Maher has these uh, random podcasts. Have you ever seen that? I, I have. Yeah. He had William Shatner on there. All right, Mike, I appreciate the detail in which you've uh, shared your schedule. And I ho- I guess everybody knows that if they want to avoid, avoid boredom, just, just do that, Mike. And uh, continued good luck to you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Whew. Um, yeah, you know, when I when I asked for suggestions for people, I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, take up basket weaving, learn to knit, take a chess lesson. You know, it wasn't necess- you don't have to give me your whole schedule. I mean, as fascinating as it is, you know, learn calligraphy or, uh, you know, go for a walk. It's kind of what I had in mind. But different strokes for different folks. I'm glad he's listening to us. 800 848 Two two. Uh, Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, a few quick things. I was the guy yesterday that called about Sid's mom. He didn't check with him, did you? Yeah. We, wait. Hang on a second. Yes, we did check with Sid, didn't we? Um, did we? Did we get an answer on whether that was Sid's mom or not, uh, Kenneth? No, Sid never told me because Justin didn't play the cut for him yet. So I'm not what? sure if they talked about <laughs> it or not. I don't know when Justin played the cut, but what is it going wasn't on? when I was there. What is going on on that show? You know, I'm I'm supposed to be on that show uh, later later this morning. I don't know. They canceled my last couple of appearances. So if I'm on that show, I'm going to ask Sid about that. Please reiterate that audio to Justin, if you would, Ken. So I, I didn't bring it up with him in person because he was uh, – honestly, Sid was too busy celebrating over the ratings for last month and uh, – complimenting me for the fact that I acknowledge the rating. So I was not going <laughs> yeah, to uh, 
I was not going to bring that one up. So um, I was. I figured it would be fun for him to discuss on air, but he di- he didn't do it. But what else did you have for us, Joe? Uh, two quick things. Uh, the opening song that, uh, that that gentleman who passed away who sang for you that sounds very similar to the uh, the Hotel California opening. If you listen to both of them, that's the intro to the Hotel California sounds just like that guy's song of uh, the other side of midnight. Really? Are you calling Andy yeah. B a plagiarist? No, 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 but it, it's very reminiscent. Try it. You know, later oh, very interesting. All right, we'll play. We'll have both ready later on, Matt Blaze. And then what else and, did you have uh, for us, Joe? And for the boredom, I would say uh, do a volunteer job. Uh, somebody else kind of stole it, but do something where someone depends on you. About six years ago, because I have a lot of time with my job uh, on off, I, I joined the fire department, and it was like the oh. best, thing ever, best thing I ever did. That's a great and suggestion. I'm not saying that you have to do something, but there's just, if someone's depending on you, then it becomes like now you're thinking about something other than yourself, no matter how depressed, and it answers depression and boredom at the same time, because you're helping someone I, I make love you feel that. better. I love that, Joe. Thank you. That's a great suggestion. And you know what I'll add? You know what you can do, honestly? I, I mean, is there's such an opportunity for political activism, and there's you could spend your whole day doing that and maybe you don't want to because it's frustrating but you, you look at what's going on in New York this year and New Jersey this year everything's up in terms of city council in New York in terms of state legislature in New Jersey and a lot of people are running unopposed some of these people that are bored I'd love to see them run for office right or volunteer for someone else all right one more and then uh, my friend Mark Berman is standing by for the AC report there's a lot that I want to go over with him but Brad in the Bronx has been patiently holding hello Brad hi Frank I wanted to ask a question regarding your interview with Bill Burns sure he made a very historically significant statement where he said that George Washington reported that he had seen an orb and and uh, aliens I wanted to know have you read that passage and if, in fact, it actually exists, in, in what document or journal and where is it stored where somebody could read that? Yeah. Have it, you read that specific passage uh, you and know, what exactly I, you did? I did a couple of years ago. So um, it, it's I, so I don't have the citation in, um, in front of me, but um, it, it, there, was, there, was some, there was some sourcing for that, but I remember it being – a, um, I remember it not being perfect, like a, a perfect uh, firsthand situation. Um, but uh, the, honestly, the the details of it escape me, and I don't have the book in front of me. I will tell you this: in nineteen six, and this is well documented, uh, in nineteen sixty nine, Jimmy Carter did see a UFO, and he did report it. Uh, and it, this was before he was president, obviously. But yeah, in um, you know October of uh, 1969, two years before he became governor, Carter was about to give a speech at a Lions Club meeting, and it, one of the guests called his attention to what was visible about 30 degrees above the horizon to the west. Carter described the object as being bright white and being about as bright as the moon it was and then you know he went into some other details and then he did report it he was encouraged to file a report about this but he was asked by the international ufo bureau to file a report of the sighting and he did and he talked about this you know really for the rest of his life uh so that sighting is very well documented and there's audio and video of Carter talking about it. The Washington sighting, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit murkier, I'll say. It's a little bit more of a gray area. Well, see, that's the problem with this whole ufology field where people can just throw something out. That would obviously be, if arguably, our greatest American ever and our first president 
had actually made a statement like that or if it's in writing, that would be a genuinely historically significant fact. And yet when you go to try to ascertain the fact, it, it seems like it's just another myth. Well, it, it is. Uh, look, I, I'm going to bring the book in because I do have it. And uh, we uh, I'll tell you exactly what it says. Or if you email me, I'll send you the citation because I remember thinking it could have gone. It could have gone either way, um, th- that particular vision. But your point's well taken, Brad. You're is absolutely well taken. And the other fact is, he did he did Washington state that that perhaps was a dream that could have been a dream he was writing about as opposed to an actual, um, you know, daytime event. Right. Um, Yeah. I don't think he said that it was uh, a dream. But again, I don't have the text of the book in front of me, but I'll uh, if you email me, I'll I'll connect you with what exactly it says. And if I can remember to bring it up on the air again, I, I will tell people exactly what that journal says. Thank you, Brad. And if you do want to email me, uh, it's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Mark Berman, live from Atlantic City. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. at the 48 most interesting blocks in the world, and we're going to do it with one of the most interesting people in the world, and that is my old friend Mark Berman, a veteran video journalist, a podcaster, a guy that's just an all-around interesting character, former talk show host, a contributor to uh, numerous publications, including Shore News, and Atlantic City's major minor celebrity mark it has been too long it's great to talk with you again frankie it's always great to talk to you and i have to do full disclosure you're a very educated man and you're well read frank morano well i'm from philadelphia originally and i've never read a book in my life and i'm 70 years old and i'm (laughs) proud of it (laughs) if only that were true hey um by the way thanks for coming to new year's eve eve last year i'm sorry we didn't get a chance to uh, to hang out more but i'm glad that you were you were able to stop by it really is not new year's eve eve without you uh, you know what 
I love what you do for this town because I'm not from Atlantic City. I moved here in 2006, adopted the town. And, you know, Frank, everybody here knows you, loves you. And we all suffer in Atlantic City from big fish, small pond syndrome. A guy like me from Philly moves here, gets on radio for 10 years, interviews the biggest names in the world, then worked for this uh, for 13 months for this newspaper called the uh, Star Ledger, I think it is. I don't know. It's somewhere. Uh, and and then J.com. <laughs> so anyway, Frankie, uh, we have so much going on here in Atlantic City all of a sudden. It's true. So uh, I, I, I want to give you a little bit of this. Great. The St. Patrick's Day Parade is back, but it's the St. Patrick's Parade because it's on Sunday the 12th, and it begins around noon, 1230, on the boardwalk at, that's right, the Irish Pub. And Kathy Burke is on the board. This year, it was going to be canceled again. Former state senator and Egg Harbor Township Mayor, Sonny McCullough, made a call and said, look, we'll put a group together and we want to do this parade. Frank, come down for it. It I, you know, takes place again this year. Well, yeah, I'm it's pretty back. I'm pretty excited about this. I've actually never been down there for the parade. Here was the mayor of Atlantic City, Marty Small, making this announcement uh, a couple of days ago. All administration is always having focus on special events. We support all cultures here in the great city of Atlantic City, and we support, more importantly, tradition. And this is a tradition that, when called upon, my administration said absolutely that we will give you the tools necessary to succeed in making this a reality. And um, what makes it so great, uh, Mark, if people have not been down there, what makes the St. Patrick's Parade in Atlantic City so interesting? You know, that's a, that's very simple to answer. It's on the world-famous boardwalk. There is no boardwalk like ours. It takes place from the Irish pub to Albany Avenue. Where does it end? At the Knife and Fork. Who are this year's Grand Marshals? Frank and Joe Doherty. The owners of Doc's Knife and Fork. And it doesn't get any better than strolling our boardwalk. And just this today, the band that's at Bag Day every year at the Irish Pub, which is the day after St. Patrick's Day, it's Kathy Burke's own holiday. The band that plays there and has for 12 years, we just got, they're going to be walking down the Great Woodway. Uh, at the St. Patrick's Parade. So it's going to be great. It's not going to have as many people as it had in the past because it just got started last week. But in that amount of time, all the New Jersey publications picked up that it's coming on. Well, I mean, yeah, this is, no, this has I, been amazing. I think it's, uh, I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty exciting, and uh, the fact that it's going to be on a weekend uh, probably makes it a lot easier for people that might be uh, either residents or people that might make the trip down there. One of the reasons I, I enjoy talking with you, Mark, is that uh, unlike other people who may have a vested interest in putting the rosiest possible spin on Atlantic City, casino owners, uh, restaurant owners, or you know whomever. 
Denver, you have no qualms about uh, giving us the good, the bad, and the and the ugly. If people don't know your background, though, Mark, I alluded to the fact that you're a podcaster, and we're going to tell people how to listen to your podcast in a, in a minute, and a former talk show host. But give folks some of the highlights of uh, of your career covering not just Atlantic City, but life in general. Well, I'm from Philadelphia, and... When I was married to the plaintiff, that's my ex-wife. <laughs> I'm married to Susan, 30 years. But in Philadelphia, I had a job where I went to work every day for a company called Sears Roebuck. Because of Amazon, nobody's around anymore. But anyway, I worked there. But I became a disc jockey. So I did radio in Philadelphia. My co-host of my Philadelphia show was Sam Butera, who was a Las Vegas, Louis Prima sax man and played Atlantic City at the Rendezvous Lounge. So I got into music, and uh, luckily when I met Susan 32 years ago, she's my meal ticket, and I just (laughs) enjoy my life, and I'm her cabana boy. And the fact is, yes, she has a business that I'm not part of the LLC, and I'm not allowed to talk to her agents or her customers. (laughs) I do her marketing. But anyway, so I've been in this business and I love my idols in life are not sports stars. My idols in life are radio people. And I'm talking about, even though I'm from Philly, Herb Oscar Anderson, Mm. Dan Ingram, Cousin Brucie. How about that for New York? And then we talk about Highlight and Joe Niagara and the late Jerry Blavitt down here It's just, and of course, up where you are, I feel there wouldn't be a Mark Levin and many others if there wasn't a Bob Grant. Oh, no no doubt about it. No doubt about it. And I think Mark himself would acknowledge that. In fact, I don't think. I know. I've heard him mention that. But we're talking with Mark Berman. And uh, if you want to hear more of uh, Mark Berman, including some of the great interviews that he's done, uh, you can check out markberman.com. That's M-A-R-C, berman.com, and a whole world opens up. Mark, uh, one of the issues that's been very controversial down there is the issue of of whales. There have been, depending on how you count, there have been between 9 and 19 um, whales that have died and ended up on the beach. Now, not all 19 in New Jersey, but if we're talking between the Northeast and North Carolina, it gets to 19. If we're talking just New York and New Jersey, I believe that number is 12. If we're talking just New Jersey, I think that number is, is nine. But, um, a lot of people are very concerned about this, and this is not a, a political thing, but uh, if, you wa- if you walk by a whale dying or dead on the beach, I feel like no matter if you're the coldest person in the world, it really has to tug at your heartstrings. Uh, give, me, give me your take on um, – first, describe the scene down there. What's it been like with all these whales beaching, beaching themselves? When you have a humpback whale – dead on your beach. You can see it from our world-famous boardwalk. You could see it from our hotel rooms that face the beach. And then it starts to smell. Well, here's my take on it. I have been to the rallies. I videotaped Jeff Andrew. I videotaped Palestina, who have been out there. And when you say it's not political. In our country, the greatest country on earth, America, in 2023, 
everything's political, and I am not somebody that feeds into politics, and that's what I call it. So the fact is, this is fact, okay? Whales are washing up on our beaches, and they're dead. And it's not only here, but it's New York, and it's on the East Coast, as you said. They're dead. Something is killing them. I've been in Atlantic City since 2006, and there's never been a dead whale that has washed up, and dolphins are washing up also. Now, where I live in the inlet, outside my window, I see three casinos. I see Jared Kushner's property that he owns up here, which used to be where Captain Starnes was. And I get to see the billionaire's yachts coming in and out. Of Golden Nugget, I get to see the clam boats in our clam industry, and I'll tell you about that in a second. And I also get to see the boats that this company called Orsted has coming in with sonar. Now, for your listeners, what I'm going to say, because I know that if they're watching Fox, Fox is covering this. If they go to science.org and search Navy admits sonar killed whales. There's a report. Now, do I know that it did? I don't. I read that report. But people are saying, and this is where it becomes political, the governor of New Jersey, sonar didn't kill the whales. What's he, a scientist now? Well, yeah, I mean, I find the response from Governor Murphy and others on to this question so uh, so bizarre, quite frankly. You alluded to uh, Congressman Jeff Van Drew. He was on uh, Newsmax a couple of weeks ago with uh, Rob Schmidt talking about wind development and some of these whale deaths. This is with Congressman Van Drew. He's the congressman that represents Atlantic City and a lot of other parts of South Jersey. This is what he said on this. Oh, it's going to be hard, but we're going to do everything we can. I've already um, asked for hearings, as you know. We are in the process of scheduling the first hearing, which will actually, the vast majority of these wells, there's about 12 now, and uh, nine or 10 of them are actually have been beached or died within my district. So we're going to have a big meeting there with a lot of the local people, first of all, being able to talk about it, the fishermen, scientists. Uh, There's a couple of good environmentalists like Clean Ocean Action and Cindy Zimpf who really do believe in doing the right thing. The other environmentalists seem to be bought off, literally. Uh, There's huge amounts of money going to these environmental groups, and they just don't care. This is an anti-environmental thing, what's happening. It's doing damage, and it's going to do even more damage when people get the price tag because people's utility bills are going to go way up. And uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us, Mark, what is the view from the rank and file on this? Do they kind of agree with what uh, Jeff Bandrew and others are saying, that we need a, a moratorium of some sort? I'm hearing more people talking about that, about a moratorium. What I would like to see is a third party come in and do an investigation Mm. without a money trail attached to it. Because there was just a report in our local newspaper about companies that had received grants from Orsted. And Orsted is building a campus in what's known as Snug Harbor. If you're in Golden Nugget and you're looking across the water – to Gardner's Basin, that's Snug Harbor over there, where the clam boats are. I just got to share this with you if I have a second. I live 
where the clam boats are, and I'm addicted to them. I watch them come in and out all day, and I photograph them. I went down to the docks. There's two companies there. The blue boats are owned by Truex, Martin Truex, the race car driver's uncle. He's, he's his nephew. Uh, he passed away, by the way, but the family owns the blue ones. The red ones are La Monica, a company in Vineland, New Jersey. Okay. I said I wanted to bring somebody on my radio show before I quit radio, and I quit because I used all the words I know. So here's the deal. I asked him to come on. He says, I'm not coming on the show to talk about that. Here's what he said to me. He says, I want to come on and talk about how these windmills here in Atlantic City, the five that we have, they alone are hurting the clam beds. And if they put in any more towers, windmills, turbines, our clam beds will be destroyed. I got that from him. He's a clam fisherman. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. Maybe he doesn't. I think he does. So our fishing industry can be in jeopardy. Our view where I live, I see three casinos and five windmills, and at night, red blinking lights. If you, if they're allowed to build these wind turbines, and unfortunately, the governor of New, of, of New Jersey has already decided what he's going to do, so good luck to all of us that don't want this. By the way, I do want to say, defend, Brigand, defend Brigantine Beach on Facebook if you would like more. They're very active, and they will also point you to other groups that will be able to guide you and enlighten you on this. Well, talking but with Mark I've Berman, you can check out his podcast at markberman.com. Very quickly, Mark, uh, we only have about a minute left. Tell me about the Atlantic City Walk of Fame. What is it? When is it launching? Who are, Who's going to be featured on it? This is amazing. Okay, here's what happens. The... Uh, the Rock and Roll, I'm sorry, the National Rhythm and Blues Music Society is the sponsor of this. At Brighton Park, Park Place, right outside the Claridge, there's a water fountain. Around that water fountain, yes, I say water, I'm from Philadelphia. Around that water fountain are going to be plaques, like in Vegas, like in Los Angeles. And the first uh, ceremony and unveiling will be Monday, April 24th at Brighton Park. Everybody's invited. And who's being inducted? I am on the nomination committee. There's five of us. And uh, the first inductees, James Brown, his daughter will be there. Oh, cool. Rock and Roll, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Little Anthony, he will be there. And two of the members of his group. Also, the surviving member of the Delphonics, Will Hart, they're also I, lo- I love the I love the Delphonics. You know, when I'm trying to romance Rachel, that's what I put on the uh, the speaker. I love <laughs> the Delphonics. Uh, so, uh, w- give me the date for that again. April fourth, you date said. Is April twenty April twenty fourth twenty fourth. Yes, and uh, the last person is Grover Washington's daughter will be there because he is going to be inducted as well. Uh, the induction time is one p.m. It's free and open to the public. So that that's a Monday. I, I'm going to see if maybe um, I'm going to try and be there for that, and maybe we can do the show from there uh, that morning or uh, or Tuesday morning to make sure that I I can be there for that. That's a that it should be nice weather, and that sounds uh, that sounds uh, great, Mark. It's always a treat talking with you. I hope everyone checks out your podcast, and you've re-released a lot of new material on there. Uh, check it out at markberman.com. Thank you, Mark. 
Thank you, Frank. I'll talk to you soon. If you want to comment on any part of our, any part of our conversation, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Riders on the storm Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone And actor out alone Riders on the storm There's a killer This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. A couple of quick notes. I actually did realize I have an electronic version of uh, UFOs in the White House. And I did look at the sourcing for that George Washington Journal. And I remember here's the problem. The source is something that was written in 1861 called Washington's Vision by Charles Wesley Alexander. And there's a debate, and this was 100 years after Valley Forge, okay? So there's a debate about whether or not that is pure fiction or whether that was based on uh, oral traditions that George Washington passed on to other people. But for the more modern presidents, Obama, Clinton, uh, and others... The sourcing is much better for the things that this book claims. All right. A lot of other stuff to get to. Uh, we will. 800-848-9222. We'll take your calls as well. Brian Kilmeade still to come in the $1,000 minute. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, or should I say, <clears throat> good evening, folks, and welcome to my late night radio show. I'm Frank Morano, and tonight we're talking about a topic that's been on my mind lately. 
AI written books. Now, I know what you're thinking. Frank, what's the big deal? It's just books. How dangerous can they be? Well, let me tell you, folks, the rise of AI written books is nothing to sneeze at. For starters, these books are popping up all over the place, from romance novels to mystery thrillers. AI-written books are flooding the market faster than a busted dam. And while some of them might be passable, others are downright terrifying. I mean, have you seen some of the covers on these things? It's like someone fed a bunch of stock photos into a blender and hit puree. But it's not just the aesthetic that is concerning. It's the content. See, the problem with AI-written books is that they lack something that human authors have, empathy. These machines don't know what it's like to be human, to feel love or loss or heartbreak. They don't understand the nuance of human emotions, and as a result, their writing can come off as cold and clinical. And that's not even getting into the potential dangers of AI-written propaganda. Imagine a world where political parties use AI-written books to sway public opinion. It's not that far-fetched, folks. It's fact, it's already happening in some countries. So what's the solution? Should we ban AI-written books altogether? Well, no, that's not realistic or fair, but we do need to be cautious. We need to remember that these books are not a replacement for human creativity, and we should always approach them with a critical eye. In conclusion, folks... The rise of AI written books is a fascinating development, but it's also one that comes with risks. Let's enjoy these books for what they are, a technological marvel, but let's not forget the power of human creativity and empathy. This is Frank Morano signing off. Every word that I just read to you was written by the AI chatbot. Every single word. I did not write a single word of that. I gave the AI chatbot, chat uh, GPT, the following prompt. A three to five minute radio commentary in the style of Frank Morano, parenthesis, informing people about the rise of AI written books and warning about the dangers of so many of them. The monologue should be substantive and factual, but also filled with humor at times. I give it about a six. Give it about a six. It's better than me when maybe on a Monday when I'm tired. But uh, I think by and large, the real Frank Morano is is far better. So um, the reason that I wanted to mention this is because there has been an explosion of chat GPT written books and stories that are starting to pile up. And look, I have written some of these not, not written. I have given prompts to the AI chat bot, you know, to make a sequel to movies that I like, to uh, do all sorts of other things. Um, but I haven't published any of them, right? They, these users are putting chat GPT to work, writing stories in books, and trying to sell them. What's happening is this. Reuters reports that it found more than 200 books in Amazon's Kindle store that listed ChatGPT as an author or a co-author, while a respected science fiction magazine closed the door on unsolicited submissions after a deluge of ChatGPT-authored manuscripts. AI um, 
As this AI bandwagon gathers momentum, it enables mass production of text and images, and you can expect any open platform to get clogged fast. Neil Clark, the editor of Hugo Award-winning Clark's World, tweeted on Monday, submissions are currently closed. It shouldn't be hard to guess why. Clark said the influx of AI written entries was largely driven by side hustle experts making claims of easy money with chat GPT. Clark had previously noted in a blog post that spam submissions to his magazine had mounted from the start of the COVID pandemic. They started multiplying on a hockey stick like exponential curve with the arrival of chat GPT at the end of 2022. And there's a lot of other articles about this, but this is a a real problem because this is just what we know about how many books are out there that are written or co-written by chat GPT that we don't know about. So I think this is pretty, uh, I think it's, I think it's pretty fascinating on the one hand. um, But I also think it's pretty scary uh, on the other hand, because we're essentially relying on publishers or users to, judge for themselves whether something is written by a person or by artificial intelligence. Well, I don't know. 800-848-9222 if you have a thought on this. Speaking of big tech, I mentioned yesterday the the cases that the Supreme Court is hearing on this. Elena Kagan said, had some very interesting things to say say on this subject, but um, in the more than two and a half hours on what day is today? Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday. On the more than two and a half hours of oral arguments on the first major tech case that they heard, Elena Kagan had uh, this to say. Now, Elena Kagan, like all the members of the Supreme Court, whether you disagree with their political philosophy or their legal philosophy or whether you agree with it, these are all very intelligent people. Elena Kagan got one degree from Princeton. She got a master's degree from Oxford and she got a JD from Harvard. Okay, so she got, I mean, she's, these are three of the best schools in the world. She's a smart lady. Okay. This is what she said in oral arguments on Tuesday. Quote, we're a court. We really don't know about these things, meaning technology and big tech and Section 230, that kind of thing. We're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the Internet. Let me repeat that. We really don't know about these things. You know these are not like the greatest experts on the Internet. What? I mean, Elena Kagan, graduate of Harvard, graduate of Princeton, graduate of Oxford, on the Supreme Court, in oral arguments. This is not hanging out in the Supreme Court cafeteria saying, uh, can you pass me the, like, uh, butter substitute? No. Or do you ask, do you have any, like, uh, artificial sugar or something? Why do people insert the word like into everything? How did we get to a place where like 
became sort of a comma. And look, I know we all have our little crutches that we that we insert into words. Sometimes when I'm editing some of my own things that I record, uh, I I catch things that I that I say all the time and use as a crutch. I, I had no idea, for instance, that I say the word now as much as I do, or use the word so as much as I as I do. That is, I'm sure, very irritating to people that are e- that are irritated by that kind of thing. But to me, we have got to do something to break our linguistic dependence on the word like. I'm asking you, you know, much like I did with our semi-weekly pledge, can you take the no-like pledge? Unless you're describing your fondness for something, a food, a person, a baseball team, unless you're describing your fondness for something, don't use the word like. Don't use it. There's no need. Think about how Elena Kagan's sentence would sound if she just omitted the word like. And again, I'm not meaning to pick on her because everybody does it. Everybody does it. I'm reminded of a conversation that I had with F. Lee Bailey like before he died. I, I just, no, I, I was doing that for dramatic in, in, intention there. F. Lee Bailey, obviously a celebrated criminal defense attorney before he was disbarred. He represented the, uh, he represented everybody. Uh, the the guy that the fugitive was based on, he represented O.J. Simpson. He, re- whatever, we don't need to go through his whole list of credits. But he, I asked him towards the end of our interview, we did a lengthy interview, about an hour or so. And I asked him towards the end of the interview, what are you working on? And I thought his answer was so like interesting. This is what F. Lee Bailey like said. What's next for F. Lee Bailey? What can we look forward uh, to to hearing and seeing from you in the future? Well, um, one of the things you don't do when you get to be 81, and I was during that age, and feel great and full of ambition and optimism and all the good things that you're lucky to carry late in life. I have several things I'd like to accomplish. One is to improve the development of trial lawyers. That's what this book is all about. Second is to assist in vastly improving our penal system, which is by and large the biggest failure in the history of America. I mean, we just churn people in and out of confinement. If they have any chance of straightening out, we pretty much ruin that. It is not something we should be proud of. And the sad thing is it can be fixed, as we have shown in a number of instances. So here in Maine, that's one of my primary objectives. And the last one, more as a hobby, I guess, than anything else, is to try to get people interested in speaking the King's English. There hasn't been much interest in that. It's hard to find somebody that doesn't say, you know, five times a sentence, or nowadays, someone who says like ten times in a sentence, uh, you won't see it on news anchors. They would never get hired if they do that. But you, uh, athletes cannot speak without saying, you know, several times a sentence. But Hillary Clinton and uh, President Obama, both of whom are good speakers, also do it. And it's just sloppiness. And I like to scold people 
and then show them the right way to get a message across so that it's interesting and comprehensible. I don't know how and when this got started, this addiction to mid-sentence usage of the word like. What caused it? Where did this come from? I'm always curious where things came from. And that's why, you know, I used to love the William Shatner show, I Don't Understand. But it was on RT, and RT kind of got shut down, and we can't watch it anymore. But basically, the premise of the show was Shatner would have an issue, uh, and he would say, oh, whatever it is, electricity. I don't understand how it works. And he would get people to explain how electricity works. And it's really it was really an interesting show. And... I was reminded of this uh, the other day because when Shatner and I had dinner with these two other people that were involved in the tour, we're talking about food and we're talking about uh, India and we're talking about how they don't eat cows in India. And Shatner loves to ask the same question that I just asked. Why? Where did that come from? And we're talking about the cow. And he said, essentially, where did that start? How did that start? Did it start with Hinduism? Did it start with being Indian? Uh, when did the how become, oh, excuse me, he said, when did the cow become holy? And I, of course, responded, it was around the advent of Phil Rizzuto, which people got a big kick out of. But we, And subsequently, we did research it, and we found out that the cow has been holy for this number of years, and this is why. Where did like come from? Why do people say it? Where, like, I just, I just used the word like just now. Why does it go in sentences? What, why do people do it? How did it get started? You watch a war picture from, say, World War II, uh, the best years of our lives, or something along those lines. You look into the dialogue. You don't hear anybody say like in the middle of a sentence. Now, I realize those are scripted movies and these are actors and they're not going to script the word like in the middle of a sentence. I get that. But how did this start? More important, how can we end this? 800-848-9222. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Let's say hello to Sarah in Wisconsin. Uh, Sarah, how close to uh, Milwaukee are you? About three and a half hours. Oh, okay. Well, because Shatner's coming to Milwaukee. I'm hoping to be with him. I don't know if I will be. No, but... you told me you couldn't sell out Milwaukee. Yeah. Why yeah. is that? Yeah, yeah, what's going on over there? What are you guys oh, doing? It's, it's like such an issue. It is indeed. <laughs> it is. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I said it's because the people there were too cheap. And the other thing is I'm looking out my window right now. We've already experienced the final frontier every winter in Wisconsin. <laughs> I see. Maybe it's weather related. Give me your no. thoughts on like gates. Okay. You know, I'm so glad you brought this up because, you know, you said, well, when, does this, when did this start? Okay. My parents are both English teachers. All right. I remember vividly, I knew where it ended for me because I came home from school and was giving my folks the usual diatribe of what happened. And my father's just watching and listening and nodding his head and, you know, whatever, in his wise way. And when I got finished talking, he said, Sarah, yeah, you used the word like nine times in your description of your day. That wasn't necessary. Why did you do that? (laughs) He said, 
doesn't make you sound very articulate or intelligent to do that. Oops. Try not to do that. So you were, you were able to stop cold turkey? Cold turkey. Absolutely cold turkey at home. But to this day, Frank, that has bothered me so much. And it's become worse and worse. I mean, I count the number of times someone says, like, now, when I see them interviewed or, you know, just speaking on TV or hearing them on the radio, it's incredible. And it's just accelerating. So I'm so glad you brought this up. But, Maybe it'll just kind of jar people the way my father jarred me. Right. Out. Well, that's sort of what I'm trying to do. Why did it get started, though? I mean, you know, I've studied, I've I've talked about something called the Mandela effect, which you might be familiar with, but if people aren't, it's basically mass, uh, all sorts of separate people that don't know each other all believing the same thing, even though it's incorrect. They all remember the same incorrect fact, for instance. And there's a lot of theories as to why that's the case. But how did all these people that don't know one another say to themselves consciously or subconsciously, let's sneak the mid-sentence use of the word like into our vernacular? What do you think the, the progenitor of this was? Are you speaking to me now? Yes. Well, I'm speaking oh, okay. to you, but I'm I also, I guess, speaking. If, if you... Neither do I. Neither do I. I... You know, I never know if you've cut me off and then you keep talking. You no, know? no, no, no. Um, You're still with us. Okay. Um, I think that it's a, I think it's a factor of the, the repetitiousness of it and people hearing it more and more and this emulating it. As in with other expressions, you know, most recently, top of mind. I mean, you know, you could just track where the first time that was exposed again, and now everybody uses it. Do you know what I'm saying? Right, and I get that, right? I understand where top of mind came from. I understand where the popularization of the term fake news came from. I understand where the term return to normalcy came from. What I don't, what I don't understand is where the use of the, mid, the mid-sentence use of the word like came from. I'm sure... And at the time, I was in eighth grade, okay, mm. in 1968. That's when I was, when my father called me out on it. That's how vivid a memory that is. So I'm sure I, I heard it at school. I heard other people speaking that way, other kids for sure doing it. Uh, my God, I mean, if you ever listen to a, and you probably never have, a Kardashian speak, it's every fourth word. <laughs> well, and thank you for the call, sir. I appreciate it. That's a good, uh, you know, that's an interesting reference that you made to the Kardashians, because one of the things that I noticed that they started when their reality show started is right around that time, right around the time that that show became popular, you all of a sudden heard this uh, verbal fry or vocal fry. It was everywhere. And it was very clear where people were getting it from. It was very clear they were getting it for that sh- from that show. Where did like come from? Was there a big movie in the 1970s that used the word like in every sentence and then every young person started saying it and they taught it to their kids and so on and so so on like a, I don't know, like a laundry commercial? I don't know. It, tell me. I don't, as Shatner would say, I don't understand. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Because you know what really grinds my gears: the mid-use and repeated 
use of the word like. 800-848-9222. Jerry in Rockaway. Hello. Jerry. Jerry. Jerry, I have the feeling that Alex might have misnamed you, right? And that's why you're not responding to Jerry. Is that possible? I think it's me and Ken. Uh, oh, Kenneth might have misnamed you. All right, well, where, where, whatever. If you're if you're Jerry or whatever your real name is, you're no longer with us. Jeffrey, hello. Frank. Jeffrey. Frank, can you hear me? Yes. I actually have the answer. Great. I can't believe it. I'm so happy. Okay, remember. Um, first of all, the, the folk singer uh, artist Loudon Wainwright. You know that name? Uh, give it to me again. Loudon Wainwright. I, I've heard the name, but I couldn't right. pinpoint what song. Been around was since the seventies. He wrote a song about ten years ago, maybe maybe twenty, in which he referenced his his distaste for the use of the word "like," and how he he, he thought it was um, the song references Maynard G. Krebs and um, you know, getting your cool quotient in, and that would make sense because you know uh, the, the jive talk. I think uh, George Carlin also did a thing about jive talk. And that's where the word lies. So people trying to be cool in the 60s, that's where it started. And, like, can you dig it, man? <laughs> oh, okay. So it started with jive. Yeah. And, so, and, but yeah, why, why, does, why do so few of the other jive phrases stay with us? Like, you just mentioned, can you, you know, can you dig it? That's not something I hear regularly, but I no, do hear a, like regularly. Right. That was a joke. Well, that one was like the, the culture let go of that one. But judge, I guess the word like from jive talk has caught on. And I remember in the late, late 80s, there was an expression this person was using with me, do you know what I'm saying? Know what I'm saying? And I, it was just starting, and I would, I would stupidly say, yes, I know what you're saying. <laughs> rather, rather than realize it was, it was a new thing. Yeah, that's very and funny. It, and the one, that makes, the one that makes me really blow, blows my mind, I mean, maybe she's very upset, is, and I guess it's caught on as bad as like, Frank, is the word right. Right, 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 right. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. For some reason, that doesn't bother me as much as uh, as much as like does. Oh, actually, but I can see I can see why it does bother actually, people. Actually, Frank, on yes. second thought, I have I have a defense for the word right. Okay, it's a, I, it's a, a complete one eighty of what I just said. I think that when a person is saying right, what they're doing is saying they're asking you for affirmation. Uh, right. Are you still with me? Do you follow me? Do you object to what I'm saying? And if you don't, I'll continue. I think it's all contained in that. You know, it's funny that you say that because, and I appreciate the call, uh, Jeffrey. It's funny that you say that because one of the people that really drives me up a wall, not as a person, because I don't know him as a person. I think we would actually get along from time to time. But as a political figure was Andrew Cuomo. And Andrew Cuomo, every other word was right, right? I mean, he would go do this. Uh, he would do, say, a uh, a hurricane address or update on the the hurricane or COVID, and everything was right, right? You know, I mean, it was just so irritating. And, and so I, that was one of the few people uh, that was one of the few people that I, I totally get the I mean, he would he would do a lot of things that drove me crazy linguistically. You know, the asking and answering of his own questions. Do we have to think about restarting the economy? 
Do we have to plan for it? Yes. Should we be thinking about a public health strategy that starts the economy? That, to me, is the art form for government in this situation. But what we're looking at right now is this wave of increasing cases, right? I just got off the phone with a new projection model that New York City was seeing double the number of cases every two and a half days, right? So uh, that would drive me crazy. But he didn't use the like as much as everybody else seems to. Uh, Very quickly, we'll go go through a lightning round. No, excuse me. We will go through a lightning round, and then we'll do the $1,000 minute, and Brian Kilmeade is waiting in the wings. I have a ton of issues to go over with Brian Kilmeade. Rod is in Florida. Hello, Rod. Hey, listen, Frank, the answer is simple on this lake thing. It is Maynard G. Krebs from the Dobie Gillis show. Do you, are you old enough to remember that show? Yeah, that was with uh, Bob Denver, right? That's right. He was the guy that introduced like. He was the beatnik, and every other word was like Dobie, like, wow. It was, he started it, I'm telling okay. you. Dobie Gillis was the progenitor of it. Okay. So we have one theory. Alex Barnard is writing me saying it's Scooby-Doo, that he started like. I wonder, was it Toby Gillis? Was it Scooby? Was it that recording artist that uh, the gentleman from Jersey City just mentioned? Tommy in Brooklyn. Hello. I love you. I love you. I love you, Shaggy. I don't know. That was a bad uh, imitation. Um, I have two things in regard with AI and then in regard with the word life. The word life, to me, is I believe it's a mental pause, like in order to clarify and rearrange thoughts, right? Right. And uh, good speakers use a visual and silent pause, like more dramatic, you know, and better at Better at getting right. a point, Tommy, right? Right. Clearly, yeah. you're right, Tommy. But what was that the case a hundred years ago? If not, why no, not? Man. And if it wasn't, when did it start? No, I didn't. You know what? I didn't. I didn't take that into consideration. Right. I wasn't no, but I, about I get that. what you're saying. Thank you, Tommy. Was it was it the Alex Barnard theory of Scooby? Was it Toby Gillis? Was it somebody else? Eddie in Babylon. What do you think? It is a mental pause. It's like when Ronald Reagan would say, "Well." Um, uh, and I think it's it's just you you, you make a mental pause because in your subconscious mind you're thinking of what to say next and you're not that quick. And on Long Island it happens a lot. Uh, there's a California thing that goes, hey, well, um, yeah, which is more laid back. But here in Long Island you say like or there used to be something local. Also, Frank said like, well, it's uh, like something, uh, but. So it's. I think it's when you're not as clear as you are, Frank. Well, no, I mean, I, I have – look, I have my verbal uh, tics Dude? like everybody else does. Like You mentioned oh. Reagan saying well, and I, I mentioned in my case I say now and so a great deal. And according to the AI mimicry of me, I say the word folks a lot, which I think I probably do. But uh, so if that's the case, how did the whole population or 80 percent of the population seem to settle on the word like as their word for a verbal pause, a pause in thinking? I'm going to insert like there. Where did that come from? I I think that they probably weren't on Adderall, which just, you know, (laughs) it's the uh, smart drug that (laughs) keeps you going and makes you makes you run forward. Uh, Most of us are like uh, my mother's from the Midwest, so they would talk slowly. But here in the East, we talk so fast that sometimes we're in front of our brains. 
and we don't always know what we're saying. We're racing forward. It's almost like it's almost like being on your bicycle or tripping, and you're falling toward the ground, and you're trying to get the conversation out. I have a cousin from uh, Staten Island, Mary Jane, and you can't get off the phone with her because you you wait for your cell phone or your battery phone to go dead because you speak so fast and she's incredible at it. She has no likes in there. <laughs> she gets everything out. She she could put your whole uh, five or six hours out in about ten. I could spend a day with my Mary Jane uh, cousin in about a half an hour. <laughs> All right, thank you. Machine gun, Frank. She's a machine gun. I bet. I thank you. Hey, last one, last one, and then we're going to get to the thousand dollar minute and uh, Brian Kilmeade. Uh, Trisha is in Connecticut. Hello, Trisha. Hi, Frank. Um, I don't know the answer on the like irritating use, but the most offensive thing to me is the OMG, and I won't say the word because to me he's sacred. I pray to him every day. And it is taking the Lord's name in vain, and people do it so thoughtlessly. And I want to say to them when I hear, you know, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. And when you do need help from him, how do you think he feels when you're just throwing his name out casually, meaning meaninglessly? All right, Tricia, thank thank you. I'm glad you uh, brought that up. It's not necessarily not necessarily related to the like conversation, but so be it. All right, uh, seventh caller right now to eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll give you an opportunity to win a thousand dollars if you can answer ten trivia questions in sixty seconds. Go ahead and call eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 right now. This is the other side of midnight. The thousand dollar minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Clearwater Revival. Uh, this is a birthday bumper music selection from Susan Rochester Zaccone, a, a wonderful lady who I've uh, met many times, interviewed many times, and she's uh, many things. She's got this great coleslaw called Grandma Tilly's Coleslaw. It's a coleslaw without mayonnaise, and uh, she also wrote a whole bunch of great children's books uh, called The Crumb Grabbers. The whole series of books are available on Amazon. And um, this was one. It's her birthday today. Happy birthday, Susan. And uh, it makes a great gift for somebody if you get them one of these crumb grabber books, if they're a child, especially. Come to think of it, Susan, I don't think you've sent Carmine one. He could probably use one. All right. Without further ado, it's time for The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank 
Thank you. Chris Libertini. Victor is on Staten Island. Hey there, Victor. Hey, how's it going? It's going well, Victor. Victor, you've heard this segment before, I imagine. Yes. Okay, if you're ready to go, we'll get started. Let's do it. What Christian holiday marking the beginning of Lent was yesterday? This Wednesday. What Renaissance artist painted the Mona Lisa? The, oh, uh, the, the Vinci. The XFL and the USFL are leagues where athletes play what sport? Football. What actor stars in the films Top Gun and the Mission Impossible series? Tom Cruise. Who was George Washington's vice president? No clue. Take a guess. He was also the second president. Oh, uh, Grant? No, no I'm sorry. No, it was John Adams. John Adams. But hang on, Victor, because uh, we're going to give you a consolation prize uh, so that you don't go home empty-handed. We have a refrigerator magnet for you. Uh, but, yes, if you want to learn about George Washington, there is a terrific book on that subject, one of the many great history books written by our friend Brian Kilmeade, New York Times bestselling author, co-host of Fox and & Friends, and a nationally syndicated radio talk show host. Uh, I tell you, those of you who are still looking for a George Washington's birthday gift, George Washington's Secret Six uh, by Brian Kilmeade is a great one. Uh, Brian, I'm amazed at how many lists of the best George Washington biographies or the best books about George Washington that that book comes up on. You got to be really proud of that. Yeah, I mean, it does pop up, um, yeah, because it's, uh, it actually mixes Long Island. You know, everyone's got Washington, these, these, pro, these prolific biographies. One is better than the next. What I want to just focus on is. Uh, what a bunch of Long Islanders did in order to uh, flip the war. And it's not my words. It was Washington's words. You know, basically, without without spies, we don't win. And the British came to that conclusion, too. Washington didn't outfight us. They outspied us. That's according to Major, uh, the Colonel, uh, excuse me, Major uh, Beckworth of Britain. You know, the other book that you one of the other books that you wrote most recently, which I did read at the time that that, uh, you were kind enough to send me a copy, but clearly I did not commit to memory, was a book about uh, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And lo and behold, on President's Day, a caller calls up and says there's a photo from Abraham Lincoln's inauguration that has – Abraham Lincoln in it and John Wilkes Booth. I said, no way. You're crazy. That's something that gets repeated as an Internet myth. Sure enough, it's staring at me. Page 216 of your book. Had I paid a little bit closer attention as I was reading it, I would have known that that caller was uh, was absolutely right. I mean, that's quite a nugget that you've got in your book. Yeah, I mean he he's there in the audience. Frederick Douglass is right. on the is there. Obviously, Lincoln's giving the speech, and there's John Wilkes Booth eyeing him. So many chances to miss that assassination. Best chronicle by WABC's own Bill O'Reilly. So many in, in detail. That's really first sprung me to the fact that history could be exciting when Bill O'Reilly started putting out his books, mm. and that's when I thought, well, the assassination of Lincoln. I'll read it because Bill wrote it, but because I was going to interview him. And I read it, I go, I did not know all these details. It was written in such an exciting fashion. And, by the way, it was really exciting uh, in, a, in a tragic way. 
and how preventable it was. But yeah, there was so many, so many players. You know, you see John Wilkes Booth there. You see Andrew Johnson there. You see Andrew Johnson on the platform uh, at, at the inauguration, and he makes eye contact with Frederick Douglass. And Douglass said, "As soon as I saw the vice president." I knew he's not a friend of uh, not a friend of me or my people, mm. and he was absolutely right because Andrew Johnson tried to undo essentially was indifferent towards uh, transitioning the South towards freedom for all. The uh, going back to the near present, where there's a lot of news with respect to the presidential race, a lot of news out of the uh, Georgia grand jury. Uh, we saw on uh, on CNN the foreman, uh, which I, I did, I've served on a grand jury. I had no idea you were allowed to give interviews about the cases that you were you were issuing indictments on. She was on CNN uh, talking about possible charges for former President Trump and uh, maybe some other people. Here was the the grand jury four-person Emily Coors. Did you recommend charges against Donald Trump? I really don't want to share something that the judge made a conscious decision not to share. I, I will tell you that it was a process where we heard his name a lot. Uh, we definitely heard a lot about former President Trump, and we definitely discussed him a lot in the room. And I will say that uh, when this list comes out, you wouldn't there are no major plot twists waiting for you. Well, that's something. Uh, Brian, I don't know if there are going to be indictments in this case. It seems at least somewhat likely that there might be. W- politically, what do you think this means for the Trump campaign? If there is an indictment out of Georgia, is it beneficial? Is it negative? Is it neither? What do you think? Well, you know, that Mar-a-Lago, number one story on all the uh, networks, uh, Mar-a-Lago, how could somebody take boxes of their own paperwork uh, and put it, uh, bring it down to their home? And everyone's outraged. No one can believe it. FBI, CIA agents, uh, one after another, it's outrageous. And then they find all these documents in Biden's house. And Mike Pence goes, yeah, I got some too. And that's, the whole thing is neutralized. If they come out with an indictment on Trump, it's pure politics. It'll never fly. Now this, even for the Georgia ha- case, you, not even the not even the no, so then so then oh, that's okay. what, so I think right. that that one case is neutralized. Right. So if anybody out there, you see, that sounds like a normal soundbite. You have to see this woman. She is absolutely out of her mind. Check out her website. She is the four person. Of course, it's not four men, four person in in twenty twenty three, and she is a lunatic. And she even unhinges. Anderson Cooper is interviewing her and they all say and you see these experts say why is she talking she's blowing up the case immediately if they indict Trump they're going to look to just throw this thing out because of what she said and legal experts tell me this whole case is neutralized if they do want to indict Trump on something he should not be indicted on so they did all this she's like if they don't get an indictment I'm going to be really mad because I spent all this time that's not your goal Your goal is to evaluate, not to indict. So she's saying this on national television, and I think she's done it twice, and it's incredibly irresponsible, and I think it blew up the case once again, I believe, for Trump. I don't think it was viable to begin with, but now it's legally uh, not viable. They're going to just hit her right away with a countersuit and neutralize the whole thing.
Speaking of uh, President Trump, he was in Ohio yesterday uh, with the train derailment uh, situation, which you've been covering on a daily basis, doing great coverage of, and we spoke about it at length last week. But he, he was, went to East Palestine uh, before President Biden went there and even before uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg went, that went there. This is a little bit of the president, yeah, the former president yesterday. To the people of East Palestine and to the nearby communities in Ohio and Pennsylvania, We have told you loud and clear, you are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. We stand with you, we pray for you, and we will stay with you in your fight to help answer and the accountability that you deserve. We'll have that accountability. It'll all be out there very clearly. Obviously, Brian, you covered September 11th. You covered Hurricane Sandy. You covered Hurricane Katrina. You are a great student of the optics of leaders showing up when, and obviously the COVID pandemic, when it's important to be seen. Why why do you think President Biden didn't make going to Ohio more of a priority? You know, it's just terrible staffing. And he, and he, you know, for one thing, you, you think he had to tell Trump uh, go to Ohio? I mean, by the way, he would have went to Los Angeles if there was a toxic spill and needed to be addressed. He did. When they had those far, fires, he was, he was in. Don't people say, oh, he only goes to red states. That's not true. just so happens this Ohio area, average salary, $45,000 a year, and it did go 70% for Trump. People want to say, well, deregulation causes. That's, no, it has nothing to do with it. Uh, Marco Rubio signed legislation on air brakes. What are you talking about? This was a broken axle. Now, they only had three people on this train of 50 cars. I'm not a railroad engineer. But fundamentally, this company, this huge corporation, stripping the labor down to, uh, uh, you know, d- down to the bare minimum, traveling with toxic uh, chemicals, uh, taking this risk. They're now they're going to be spending billions of dollars. I hope to rebuild this town. But for Trump just to show up, he didn't need it. He didn't need Don Jr. or Robert O'Brien to tell him. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go. As president, he would have been there. And I'm not asking you to postpone Munich. I know there's too many moving parts. Just go there right away. Just drop in. But now he's not going to go because it'll look like he's he's intimidated to do it. Now, Pete Buttigieg, that guy's an embarrassment to this country, to Oxford and to Yale and to the military. He is absolutely awful. He's a show horse. He does not want to work for a living. He's going to show up today because he was embarrassed by doing it. From us, from you and I talking about it, from Fox News reporting on it, from the Daily Caller following him in a parking lot and him saying, right now, this is my personal time. Really? Tell me about the personal time in Palestine. Tell me how that's going. <laughs> Can't argue with that. I'm I'm surprised. I'm tongue-in-cheek here, uh, surprised to hear you say anything remotely kind about President Trump because uh, President Trump blasted your network on Truth Social yesterday, calling Fox News the rhino network. And um, I have to wonder about the the politics of this. I mean, knowing a lot of Fox viewers are possible Trump supporters, is it wise to, I mean, I know he did this to some extent in 2016 as well, but is it wise for him to go after Fox in the manner that he's doing. It's really dumb. Uh, personally, it makes no sense at all. I mean, put it this way, and we've said this before, Frank, if he took the loss, sent his lawyers to evaluate Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, 
put good people on there, investigate, make sure it was a clean election, the best possible. And would you would you come up with in three weeks before they before January six? And they, if they have nothing, they have nothing. If they have something, you bring it forward. And he just showed up the inaugural, shook some hands. There wouldn't be one person in this race as he ran for re-election. Not one. And I'm telling you, uh, even though he, he took hits in, in the governor's race in Pennsylvania and with Herschel Walker in Georgia and with uh, Carrie Lake in Arizona, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, did in some other uh, other races, he did get J.D. Vance and did get some others. So he would have been basically un- unchallenged. Maybe Sununu would gets in there. But the stuff that he has done since losing the election has brought everybody in. It makes him seem vulnerable. And nobody thinks we're, you know, I, I don't even know how you characterize a Rhino network. We're a network that says, I like that Joe Biden went to Kiev. And the network said, I hate the fact that uh, my view, uh, the attackums aren't there, that we never armed him before the invasion. That's called evaluation. I, I think January 6th rally was the stupidest idea ever. Does that make me a, um, uh, anti-Republican? The fact that I praise uh, Joe Biden for, uh, you know, for going to, you know, for at least backing Ukraine. Does that make me pro-Democrat? I, I mean, the way we do it every night, you're giving opinions every seven right, minutes. Right. And uh, you, so, you're not you're not on the air to praise Donald Trump. Yeah, right. And, and he uh, knows that. And, uh, you know, John Katsimatidis, our owner, has never, ever once uh, said, oh, you know, you should say this or give your opinion on this. Not not at all. Not once. And so I, I think the notion that some, including the spectators, Freddie Gray, are trying to spin that all of a sudden there's this uh, this cabal at Fox to get Trump. It just it doesn't hold water uh, with me. And I, I, I get the political uh, value that Trump has in making everybody a potential enemy. But to me, it just looks juvenile. And I see it potentially alienating some uh, Republican primary voters. But, but I guess we'll see. It's not the first time he would have uh, outsmarted me. Um, you have seen a lot of your colleagues in harm's way, in war zones, in weather disasters, in any number of situations. And we're seeing this uh, horrible situation in Orlando where you have Spectrum News 13 became the latest local news organization faced with the task of having to report on a deadly attack targeting their own colleagues because you've had friends and colleagues that have been in such dangerous situations, tell people what that's like when you have to when you have to report on uh, a colleague being injured, killed, or potentially injured. Uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, in in uh, in terms of our reporter, you know, the Pentagon got him out. Admiral Kirby helped get him out. They 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 had a a group of retired Navy SEALs go in there, save our allies, and and get our guy out, and then the Pentagon picked him up from the Polish border and then was able to fly him to Germany or else he would have died because he couldn't get good medical care in a bombed-out Kiev at the time. But Kiev was under siege. The doctors were being bombed themselves. So now we find out uh, in Orlando these reporters are out there from Spectrum. You know, you're not making a million dollars. You just want to be able to report the local news. Spectrum is like our News 12. Mm -hmm. So they're out there doing really important stories that matter a lot to people who want to know the area. You know, there's a flood in the area, uh, illegal immigrants in a certain place. You go to that. Orlando is their beat. I've seen these guys out. They're also – a lot of times they're their own shooters. Uh, I mean, taper – like 
They work their own camera. They lock it, and then they do the report. This is bare bone stuff. And then they get gunned down by a criminal that never should be up behind right. bars. At his second, his second shooting in the day, and they basically assassinate this crew. It is absolutely awful. Uh, Brian, very quickly, uh, give us a preview of what we can expect on TV and radio for today. Uh, I'm going to do this story that I did last night on the five and expand it a little uh, about 2024. Joe Biden is not committed to run. And what would that mean for the Democratic Party? As well as see Mike Pence is going to be on today. Um, and we have Sununu. So uh, to, I'm going to be talking a lot about uh, 2024. I'm also um, going to be talking to John Taffer, a bar rescues back again. Do you know right now it is cheaper to eat out than eat at home? That's how expensive groceries are. And you're able to buy bulk in restaurants. Uh, and he also talks about the comeback of his industry that was hurt arguably as hard as anything with being shut down for minimum 14 months. Uh, Senator Kennedy, he weighs in on, on what's happening uh, not only with the president, the wrong president, uh, uh, the the former president showing up, the other president not, as well as what's going on in Ukraine and the troubling uh, enhanced alliance between Russia and China. Uh, then I mentioned Mike Pence. Uh, Doug Collins will bring us into Georgia. We're going to talk about that grand jury, the congressman who is so valuable. He's also a lawyer. Uh, he's also a pastor. And Richard Haas, he's a deep thinker from the uh, Foreign Policy Institute. Um, he is going to be on with us, and we're going to break down what is left of the president's trip and why I believe that this war has got to be won mm. by Ukraine in a year. We're not going to be funding this for for much longer. All right. Let me uh, end it there. Brian, it's always a treat to talk with you. Thank you, my friend. Uh, go get him, Frank. Have a great show. Thank you. Those of you interested in George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, you will have a field day with Brian Kilmeade's books, believe me. All right. We're going to take your calls on any subject for 15 seconds in a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of faith. Ray! Anything a politician does is political. Trump's move to go to Iowa was political, but it was a good move. Tom! This is a moron. Rich! Brian! Yeah, the man, the man stinks. And all these people who support him, like Sid Rosenberg, another phony. Thank you. All right. Uh, Everybody out, we'll get to you tomorrow. Frank Morano, good day.